Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. I wanted to recap some stuff that happened over the break because we truly didn't do anything from Tuesday of last week. We did nothing related to politics. We didn't do a show on Wednesday. That's what I'm saying. You said, well, yeah. So Wednesday until this morning, we did nothing related to politics and five whole days. It's pretty crazy. A lot, Mm. a lot can happen in five whole days, like gaining seven or eight pounds. That can happen. Mm -hmm. Depends on how many Thanksgiving dinners you had. Oh, I had some Fed Haters Club merch that was supposed to be here today. One of the items arrived damaged. (laughs) So, uh, the, the mug, I ordered a coffee mug, but super simple. I filed a, thing. I said, hey, survive damage. They said, oh, okay, we'll send you a new one. That was it. So there you go. Don't be afraid, folks. If one of our coffee mugs arrived damaged, they'll just send you a new one. Look at that. Problem solved. You get to keep the damaged one? You get to keep it. You can go to godhatesfeds.com and get some of the merch. I put up a new shirt a couple days ago. I'm going to make it a goal right now to try and put up a new shirt design. Like, what do you think? Have you done the Ron Paul was right one? I worked on it for a while over the weekend. I even bought some new software to make because I have an idea in my head for Ron Paul's face. And I can't find the setting I need to make Ron Paul's face look the way that I want it to look. Mm. And so I, I paid some money last night to try and make this shirt and then I want to do the same thing for like an I'm Ran shirt and, a, you know, for all of the greats out there. Mm. And uh, so, so anyhow, it's, it's on the, it's, it's in progress at the moment, but there's a lot of other great shirts over there at GodHatesFeds.com. Yeah. Perfect for Christmas gifts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they, even though there's drop shift, which means it's made to order, it arrives pretty quickly so that it ships out like from the time you order, it'll ship out like the next day. So it's, it's pretty fast overall. Mm-hmm. It's it's no it's no Amazon Prime guaranteed two day delivery or anything, but it ships out pretty quickly. So what I wanted to do was go over some of the important things that happened over the break and just get everyone up to speed. If you stayed away from politics like we did over this amount of time, one of the big things that happened uh, is that there is a pause currently in the Israel Hamas conflict, and they've been exchanging hostages slash prisoners i saw that israel calls them prisoners hamas calls them hostages Mm -hmm. and so they've been exchanging those at roughly a five or six to one rate which means they uh, everyone is freely admitting that a israeli is about six times as valuable as a palestinian person (laughs) so you just look at the exchange rate it's all economics and right now we're doing about six to one for the uh israelis so so you're saying people are commodities (laughs) i'm just saying there's a market for everything Apparently. Uh, anyway, uh, Israel and Hamas are also open to extending the current pause. I was reading there have been about 200 aid trucks that have made their way into Gaza trying to get them diesel fuel, stuff like that. I guess no bombing going on right now. Uh, Hamas has released 58 hostages over the past three days, uh, including Thai and Philippine nationals. I believe there was an uh Israeli American, like a dual citizenship, Israeli American uh, child that was released. And, you know, it is good. These are hostages that don't need to be held hostage by Hamas right now. They're getting released. And there are people who are held in prison by Israel. And by some accounts, what I can tell, they also didn't need to be being held by Israel in prison either. 
And so it's nice to see a little break in the fighting. And they're potentially going to keep this going. I think they're open to like 10 hostages, Israeli hostages per day, is what Netanyahu said, that they'll, they'll continue this pause as long as they can keep getting 10 Israeli hostages per day. And then when that's over, they're just going to go right back to it. Mm. Just just uh, bombing people. Mm. So that's that's the deal. So right they paused now. for Thanksgiving. <clears throat> it was kind of a Thanksgiving pause. Oh. Mm. They celebrate the, the death of the Native Americans over there too. Mm. So uh, this was a, a clip here from CNN talking about the Palestinians that were released by Israel. Thirty nine Palestinian teenagers were released from Israeli prisons on the third day of the Israel Hamas truce. A bus carrying Palestinian teenagers released from Israeli prisons arrived in the center of West Bank City on Sunday. Earlier, Israel's prison service confirmed it released 39 prisoners and detainees from a total of seven Israeli prisons as part of a deal between Israel and Hamas that also saw the militant group release hostages today. The group released, the group released Sunday included boys aged 18 and younger, two are 15, and one, the youngest, released is 14. They were welcomed by hundreds of well-wishers, some waving Palestinian flags, others carrying the flag of Hamas. When they arrived, some were detained without knowing their charge. This is the interesting part here. Because when we're fighting for Israel and peace and democracy and throwing our money towards these places, I do like to ask the question, okay, they have more, Israel has more Western values than a lot of the other countries in the region, right? I think we can probably accept that. But also they do some things that sound like uh, they could be wrong and would violate pretty easily, like our constitution, our Bill of Rights. And by the way... Same thing we did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we kind of do the same thing. Osama bin Laden <clears throat> point now. <laughs> he, he did. And uh, we... We have this Bill of Rights, and it's not just this American law. It's, it's, it's the rights that we say human beings have because... They're natural. They are on this planet because they exist. They were endowed by whoever their creator is, whether it was Darwin or it was God or whoever it was that they're endowed by their creator with natural rights, which means these people also have those same natural rights. And so when I see paragraphs like this, it's a little... Concerning, 16 of those released were serving sentences mostly for attacks on Israelis, according to information drawn from the Israeli Prison Service and the Palestinian Prison Prisoner Society, a non-governmental organization. The remaining 23 released have been held under administrative detention, a widely criticized practice in which a detainee is unaware of any charges against them, and their case is not subject to any legal process. Like Guantanamo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that's... That's weird. Now, a little bit more context from the Washington Post on these people. There's been 300 prisoners on this list, I guess, uh, that Hamas gave or whoever it was. 17 were convicted of attempted murder. So this is some of the Palestinians. This list includes 123 minors under 18. Five of them are 14. One was detained for throwing a pipe bomb, while others were detained for throwing Molotov cocktails or stones, according to the list. Uh, the list includes 33 women, the oldest among them, is 59 charged with security violations. Some of the Palestinian prisoners were listed as having been affiliated with groups including Hamas, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front, but a large number were not affiliated with a group and appeared to have acted on their own. A large number of the prisoners were arrested but not tried, with some administrative detention without trial. 
the issue has long been a controversial topic for Israel, which has come under criticism by human rights groups. Uh, let's see. They say they're holding 146 Palestinians age 18 and younger in detention or in prison on what the service called security grounds. Other organizations and rights groups cited the United Nations have estimated that hundreds of children are detained or prosecuted by the Israeli military each year. Some of those never get told why they've been arrested and they never have a trial or <laughs> anything. That's kind of weird. Yeah, they're just in prison. That's just a little bit weird, I would say. Yeah. Not saying that, they're, that they didn't commit some act of violence, but I would say if they committed an act of violence, I think they would be charged with committing said act mm-hmm. of violence. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. And Netanyahu says that uh, he re- he welcomes the release of more hostages, but he will continue the war after the hostages are released. Uh, but he said he is open to extending the current pause, which was a four-day pause in the fighting to celebrate Thanksgiving. And he said that he will uh, keep this going as long as they keep releasing hostages. Towards the end of the hostages the situation will become more dicey because Hamas is going to have to try to delay this if they want them to keep this pause going. So, you know, once you start to run low on your bargaining power, it's going to get a little dicey. Mm. We'll see. And uh, with all the aid that's coming in, I think it's beneficial for Hamas to keep this going for as long as possible because, of course, they plan on stealing all of the diesel fuel and all of the aid that comes into Gaza to help people. And so they want as much stuff to come in as possible so they can take it from the people who are supposed to be getting this aid right now and they can keep their war going. Well, Um, Netanyahu says that his goal is to eliminate Hamas. mm -hmm. Whatever that means. So that's the goal. Eliminate completely. Does it count if they just change their name? Can they do it? Can they file... File for a name change? I don't know. You think? I don't know Does how the count? copyright laws work. In yeah, trade, someone might already trademark whatever name that they want to go with. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to get a new design. That There's could be a costly. legal battle. Yeah. yeah. Could be difficult. This could be tied up in court for quite a long time, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, so that's one thing that happened over the break. Here's something that happened over the break. It's odd timing, uh, by my estimation. We got the motivation for a mass shooter in Louisville, the guy that shot up the bank, uh, I think his name was Connor Sturgeon or something like that, shot up a bank. And uh, turns out he literally said that he shot up the bank to try and change gun laws. Mm-hmm. Fight <laughs> fire with fire, man. Yeah. I mean, this should be a way bigger story than what it is. But since we have the media uh, that we have, it's not going to be. <clears throat> so... What? Magoo posted a gif. <laughs> he from, hates these cans! From the jerk. <laughs> More cans! Stay right. away from the cans. Stay away from the cans! <laughs> Die, gas pumper! All right, go ahead, Charlie. So let's, good. Let's learn about why this guy shot the place up. All right, the man who shot and killed five people at a bank earlier this year in Louisville wanted to send a message about the need for gun control. Ah. <sighs> Connor Sturgeon, who died April 10th in a firefight with Louisville police, left behind a journal that laid out his motives for the deadly attack, including his belief that killing, quote, upper class white people would prompt tougher laws on firearms access. I have decided to make an impact. These people did not deserve to die. But because I was depressed and able to buy guns, 
They are gone, he said in an entry dated April 4th. Perhaps this is the impetus for change, upper-class white people dying. I certainly would not have been able to do this were it more difficult to get a gun, he wrote. His goals included no more me and stop gun violence, send a message to politicians. The handwritten writings were part of a 64-page report released Tuesday by the Louisville Metro Police Department that included photocopy images of notebook pages, as well as an April 5th selfie showing Sturgeon making a joker face. Detective Kevin Carrillo, who wrote the report, said he believes the journal entries left behind by Connor Sturgeon are direct information to the planning and his mindset in the days leading up to the shooting. With his possible motives for his actions, including political issues surrounding corrupt politicians and lack of gun control. He was also oh, unhappy. Sorry, I, I skipped one. Oh, sorry. Uh, he opened fire on his co workers in a conference room at the old National Bank, killing five and injuring eight. Those who died were uh, these people. <laughs> the gunman was shot in the head eight minutes after the attack began by Officer Corey Galloway, who was able to take out the shooter despite being hit in the vest himself. His partner, rookie officer Nicholas Wilt, was struck in the head and hospitalized in critical condition. He was discharged from a rehabilitation center in July after more than three months of therapy. Got shot in the head. In the yeah. Left. Yeah. It's crazy. Lucky dude. Certainly, Sturgeon had mental health issues. He was being treated for depression, including therapy and medication, and had voluntarily checked into a mental hospital last year after a suicide attempt during spring break in Florida. He was also unhappy with his banking job and wanted to take medical leave after suffering a panic attack. In his writings, he said he had nothing to live for, but that need to make an impact affect change somehow on issues including climate disaster, gun access, and lack <clears throat> of mental health care. Quote, Dems get rich by doing nothing in the name of civility while they allow repubs to do whatever they want to whoever they want a level of corruption that stands directly between us and progress. He expressed disgust with how easily he was able to obtain firearms saying, quote, just walked in 45 minutes, get AR 15. That's kind of a long time. It took me 15. Mm -hmm. That's quick. Also, I like how he, for me, took out all the other words, <laughs> just walked in 45 minutes, get AR 15. Yeah. Probably went to a gun show. Yeah. I know our uh, I know our politicians are solely focused on lining their own pockets, but maybe this will knock some sense into them. If not, good luck. Um, that was a week before the shooting. Oh, that's the same thing there. Um, here's a good one there. Um, oh, both of these are good, I guess. Yeah. Even though he was planning to carry out a mass shooting, he blamed the NRA, saying it failed to show any regard for the value of human life. <laughs> At the same time, he's the one deciding. He's, he is the one who did it. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like, Quote, but let's not forget the most important player here, the one who made it all possible. Let's give it up for the NRA. I couldn't have done this without all of your lobbying dollars. You really brought this whole thing together. This is the world you are building, one without any regard for the value of human life. Who's the one that didn't have value for human life? <laughs> The ones who took the human life, like the guy who took the human life or an organization that advocates for the rights. Well, sometimes sometimes adv advocates for the <laughs> rights of people to be able to protect themselves. Loosely advocates. Okay. That's a, okay. It's a difficult one to explain to try to wrap your mind around here. 
because I, I bet you there are some people on the left who would read this and be like, yeah, NRA, you know, gun law should have stopped this madman from doing this. But also, if it wouldn't have been for all the wild leftist nonsense on guns, this guy wouldn't have done this. He was actually motivated by all of the crazy talk about people's gun rights. And that's why he went. We literally have a shooter who wrote down in his manifesto, I am, I'm going to assume, lefty, whatever. Okay. Clearly crazy. Okay. We know that. Kind of a crazy, crazy dude. I don't think any sane people decide that they're just going to mass murder anyone. Uh, But he says, I am going to kill a bunch of people in an effort to get stronger gun control laws written in America. This is a conspiracy theory come to life right here, actually. How many times have we seen this? Like, oh, Dems sending shooters out there to kill people. That way they can take away our gun rights. And then we get a story. It's like, oh, dude, lefty shooter went out there and killed a bunch of people in order to take away people's gun rights. And we're like, oh, okay, well, turkey coming up here in a couple days. So, (laughs) you know. This came out right before Thanksgiving. You literally said that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's why he did it. But then also, <laughs> also then he consciously thought about this for a long time and then, and then still made the decision. Yeah. And he blamed the NRA for allowing him to buy a gun. And that he still when, had to load and pull the trigger. Had, like he still, and that's what, that's what these people don't get is like, it's, it's the person who decided to go and do the thing. He was the person who could have stopped this shooting, not the gun laws, not the NRA, not the NRA lobbyist money. He could have stopped it, but because we've done such a good job at allowing people to blame everything on everyone else and be some kind of a victim in society and uh, have so much hatred and division in our politics and all that, he was able to literally blame an organization that lobbies Congress and then still decided to load the gun and go to the place and kill people. He could have just not done it, but he wanted to make a political stand, Mm -hmm. I guess. And he thought that killing uh, upper-class white people in a bank is what was going to do it because uh, people only care about white people getting killed, apparently, and uh, that was proven wrong, apparently, because we didn't get any more specific laws pertaining to this event that took place. Yeah. He also said something pretty important here, which is why our tagline for the show is life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. He said, I have nothing to live for. Mm -hmm. The dude had no meaning or purpose in his life. And so why not be completely nihilistic and, and take out as many people as I possibly can while I know I'm going to be taken out myself. Yeah. Cause I'm, he literally was saying, I'm ready to die. Why don't we kill a bunch of people on my way out? He could have become an activist for his beliefs on this. You know, I don't know how much time he spent uh, trying to rally groups to go protest and being annoying as hell in public or whatever people who are protesting do. I don't know if he, if he ever spent any time doing that. He could have somehow affected way more people in a positive manner uh, than going and doing what he what he did this time. But he decided that what we need to change laws is uh, another mass shooting, but killing upper-class white people, I guess. Uh, it's pretty dumb, I would say. This this should be in Dumb Leap of the Week, but I think too many people died. So, 
Anyhow, any other thoughts on this <clears throat> joke? I don't. It should be a way bigger deal. I mean, this should be a this should be a political conversation. Mm-hmm. People on the left should be saying, "Hey, our supporters who want gun control laws, don't go out there and mass murder people in order to try and get gun control laws." You know? Yeah. Let's uh, band did together. Their, did their rhetoric lead to the death of these people? I think this was incitement. This was incitement to. Should they be held liable Mm. and complicit in this man's actions? I mean, he literally said climate change. Yeah. Um, What else did he say? What else did he say? Uh, Lack of mental health care. Climate disaster, gun access, and lack of mental health care. Now, which is what the left talks about all the time. How do you think he did at affecting uh, climate change in this mass shooting? Well, he took some people out, so those people can. Oh, it's true. Yeah, less carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Those people can no longer drive their cars or have kids yep that that bank is part of capitalism Mm -hmm. and capitalism is what's destroying our climate so i guess the capitalism backs the nra he helped all those things and we've just seen a wave of change sweep the nation after this mass shooting dude literally was like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna fight mass shootings by committing a mass shooting (laughs) Mm -hmm. god and then eventually you know what's interesting Let's take this to the extreme. What if like all of our mass shootings were people doing this? And you'd be like, dude, you guys are the ones doing the mass shootings. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just not a good idea. Um, I would recommend anyone listening right now, don't commit a mass shooting. That's just my advice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take no. it for what you I will. recommend not okay. to kill anyone. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think you should. Yeah. Definitely not a mass shooting <clears throat> and definitely not an AR-15. Okay. Yeah. So it's just scarier than other, other guns. Uh, did you see the stuff about the riots that took place in Ireland? No. Yeah, so there was a... Uh, this Apparently the, Ireland has had an influx of... Immigrants. Immigrants. It and, looks like. Yeah. So you did see the... I saw thing some things about okay. it. I did, not see the, I did not see a riot. Oh, they were... I didn't know that they were protesting. Well, the, the, you didn't see it because it was mostly peaceful. Oh, okay. Was the, you see this picture right there? That yeah. pole is doing just fine right there in the front. <laughs> Uh, so it's a mostly peaceful Look at all those people over there. They're not happens. on fire. There's people climbing on the hood of a truck. All right. Yeah. Police car. Looting. That a footlocker. Some stuff on fire. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation and talk about a whole lot more on Liberty at Night. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by that treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya Protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org.
Dayton Chess back with Free Talk Live's Liberty at Night. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering the Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. And a big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. And let's get back into this conversation about the uh, riots in Ireland. Overall, no matter what it is that you're mad about, I don't think I support going and looting people's private property or... Really, any of the property. I, I don't think it's a real way to do anything unless you're going... Well, who is rioting and why? That is a great question. It seemed to be that people were upset about immigration, and that's why they were rioting. There was a stabbing spree that took place. Five people were stabbed. Three of them were children. I did not hear whether or not is any of them... because he couldn't get a gun? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Couldn't get a gun. They had the right amount of uh, mass shooting manifestos to get rid of their guns, I guess. And um, they, so there's a stabbing spree. The, the word goes out that it was an, an immigrant, non-national, that did this. And as you've seen, over across the pond, there's been quite an influx of immigrants into the country. And we do see a lot of videos on X pretty frequently uh, showing that there's some unrest that you, you get a video of crimes being committed. I don't know the numbers on this. I don't know if the crimes are being committed disproportionately by immigrants uh, from, from some of these countries, more Arab nations, stuff like that, it, it seems to be. It's a complicating, it's complicated conversation because... It's complicated. It's complicated. We're libertarians and we like, I like immigration. You know, you're pretty open border Libertarian, mm-hmm. I'm a really big gate that like everyone can walk through, almost. As long as they pass Nate Thurston's As long test. as they pass my rules that I have. <laughs> okay, so we want people to come in, but then you see all these videos all the time where it's like these immigrants committing crimes. They came from Syria, or what, name, your, name your country, and they come over and they are stabbing people and they're robbing people and raping and doing all this stuff. And I don't want to just believe that it's only immigrants doing these things in these countries. I think that there is a bit of a... Or that it's all of the immigrants. Yeah, or all, of course. It's probably a few. Very few of them. Probably a small percentage of the people that came over. Statistically, none of them. Yes, I'm sure that's true. Um, I believe last year, didn't Ireland have like 180,000 immigrants, I think, in just last year? um, They... They had a thing, the number I saw was 65,000 they had agreed to take from somewhere, uh, like refugees or whatever it was, And but I don't know the total numbers for Ireland. Mm. I did minimal effort uh, looking up the stuff for this, but I know that's why the riots happened, and it was because that's supposedly what happened. Now, one thing on X I saw going around was people are upset that the news media branded this as far-right protests breaking out in Dublin. And you see this all over the people. They do the screenshots of all the different headlines. 
And it's always these far right protests. And the thing that you're supposed to say is, oh, so you got to be on the far right if you hate kids getting stabbed. You know, that makes you far right. The problem is there's a little bit more nuance in it. Not that I'm going to be on the side of the news media here, but the people weren't out there protesting against kids getting stabbed. They were protesting against their immigration laws. That's, that is what they were protesting against. Okay, that's why they were mad. If it would have just been Conor McGregor out there and he stabbed some people, I don't think there would have been riots afterwards because they hated kids getting stabbed. Okay, because they have such a kid stabbing amount, you know, high amounts of that happening. So epidemic. Well, they're saying that the kid stabbing would have happened if there was immigration. Basically, they saw a crime committed by allegedly an immigrant to the country. And that this uh, shows that they have to do something about taking in all these people from these other countries. I think there's an art. I think there's a very delicate argument to be made. Very, very delicate argument. When you look at stuff like this, like. Ah. Are you going to say it? No. Say no, it. I'm not going to say it. Say it. I think that there are, I think that there is a viable conversation you can have about the culture of a close, like a society like Ireland, you know, and you got this culture there. Does it ever make any sense for the people who live there to be worried that it's going to get, God bless America, our freaking way that we talk about things makes you just afraid to say whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Is there ever a, a reason that they're afraid the Ireland's going to get too brown? Is there ever a reason they'd be worried that their culture is going to become outnumbered mm. and that they're going to lose it and they're going to vote to throw away everything that made their country a country because the United States decided to bomb some countries, essentially? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's not forget our part in this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's ever something that they. A legitimate conversation to be had. So you're a white Irish nationalist. No, no, I'm not. I don't care what happens in those places. At the end of the day, when I ask myself these questions, it just comes down to you have to uh, you you have to prosecute the laws that you have. Like if there's crimes being committed, people need to be prosecuted. They need to get in trouble for it. And that's the way that the society is su- supposed to work. Like if you come from another country where you got Sharia law, and you decide to put a jihad sharia on your wife or something like that, and uh, you just get prosecuted under the law, mm-hmm. and people learn that you can't just go jihad on people in other countries. Like the guy you who know. stabbed kids—that's that's against the law. It is, and so he'll Not, get he'll get arrested mm-hmm. just like anyone else would have, and and there you go. But I'm sure he's not the first guy to stab kids in Ireland. No, he's also not the immigrant that they thought he was in the first place. That seemed to be a little bit of fake rumor news Mm -hmm. going around. We'll talk about that here in a second. One thing I do disagree when it comes to all this is uh, Conor McGregor's under investigation for online hate speech. Mm. Ireland, they got some some tough laws over there. We played some videos from Ireland before talking about your free speech and your rights and stuff like that. They're not too big on those things over there. I was, I was seeing some videos about people talking about how Ireland has elected a, a government that hates white people. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. And so they're, they're trying to destroy white people is what they're saying, which <laughs> I find, I mean, come on. One of the quotes I saw going around was one of the guys uh, got up there and said that basically there were too many white people in their government. 
and that they needed to have better representation. Diversify. And, the, and they needed to diversify. And then the statistic was like, Ireland is 99% white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are we doing here? Right. I, I just, let's talk about Connor. Uh, violent riots erupted in Ireland's capital on Thursday after the alleged assailants that five people included two adults and three children as young as five years old. Now what's weird though, what is weird though, when it is a far right thing, it's a riot. Yeah. If this was like a BLM protest, this would yeah. be mostly peaceful just protest. Be mostly peaceful protest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that looked just like the BLM protest to me. Kind of did. I had to those, check to make sure those weren't a uh, video from Minneapolis. Uh, very or similar, very similar videos. Mm-hmm. But this but, was a far right riot. riot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The night of violence. By the way, they're both riots. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the night of violence resulted in the arrest of at least 34 of the reported 500 rioters, some of whom, so most of them were peaceful. Okay. Uh, some of whom set a bus and police car ablaze and damaged multiple buildings as officials suspended all public transport in the city. Irish Garda Commissioner Drew Harris labeled the Dublin riots as a as disgraceful scenes caused by a hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology. But the police commissioner's remarks were met with harsh criticism from the UFC superstar, who said innocent children ruthlessly stabbed by a mentally deranged non-national in Dublin, Ireland today. McGregor said, our chief of police had this to say in the riots in the aftermath. Drew, not good enough. There is grave danger among us in Ireland that should never be here in the first place. And there has been zero action done to support the public in any way, shape, or form with this frightening fact. Not good enough. Make change or make way. Ireland for the victory. God bless those attacked today. We pray in the month of May down by the bay. <laughs> After his initial- Wait, so this is, this is hate speech? Um, this is being investigated for hate well, speech? Let's see. There could be some more hateful speech or at least incitement of hatred in people's hearts. I don't know. After his initial remarks, McGregor emphasized he did not condone the Dublin riots, stolen property and destruction or any attacks on first responders. Quote, last night scenes achieved nothing toward fixing the issues we face. He said this, he wrote this in an accent. He did. The Irish accent. I I can't do it. I do understand frustrations, however, and I do understand a move must be made to ensure the change we need is ushered in. And fast. I am in the process of arranging. Believe me, I am way more tactical and I have backing. There will be change in Ireland. Mark my words. Now get to my fucking belt. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, I would say he's upset with the immigration policies of Ireland. And man, do you think there's... Okay. I'm never going to be in favor of any law that says certain people can't come to the country. Like I would, I would never back that. That sounds racist Mm -hmm. to me or xenophobic or Islamophobic or phobic phobic. I'm scared of being scared of stuff. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But you know, all these countries that we look at these small, like Sweden or something, just say we look at Sweden and you're like, Oh, look at their outcomes when it comes to this, this and this. And what someone will say is, well, they got a very homogenous society. You know, they've got, you know, this is their culture and these are the people and you look and it's uh, it's 124% the same brand of person that's in this uh, that's in this country. Is there is that true? Is there something to be said for having segregated culture? 
partially true. <laughs> you think? I would say. I mean, it does bring about problems when you have <laughs> traditions clashing. Yeah. You know? Different cultures clashing with each yeah. other. Look at, yeah. look at Israel-Palestine. Yeah. I mean, true. they're an all-out war. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, and it's because humans... Different morals clashing, yeah. Humans have this biological need for safety, and they view things that don't look like them or we default, act like We default them. to tribalism. That's like the most yes. default thing that happens. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does happen. Yeah. Now, we found a way, I believe, in the United States to be mostly peaceful. That mm-hmm. is true. It's mostly peaceful. We have several different cultures. A lot of different ones. But what's interesting is, when you look at New, like some somewhere like New York, right? Mm-hmm. Look at New York. Okay. All those different cultures kind of assimilate to their own few blocks. Mm-hmm. That's like true. You have Chinatown, you have a place where the Irish, you have a place where the Italians are. They you still want to live close to they, other people that are, that are like them. Even in the yeah. same city, they still is factionate a word. They still fractionate. They fractionate into factions mm-hmm. of their own little groups mm-hmm. inside of the same city. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nashville has the same thing. Everyone knows where Mexico is in Nashville. Okay. And I'm not saying that to be racist. I'm just saying like a big group of them all live in the same place. Look and we it, have, and what's the place in Michigan? Is it like Dearborn, Michigan? We have or one super of those places Mercados where, actually yeah. says that on the sign in uh-huh. certain places in Nashville where there's a large population of Hispanics mm-hmm. that all they're all together because they want to mm-hmm. go to their super Mercado versus target or whatever. They don't shop at Kroger. They go to Rosero's super Mercado. Mm-hmm. Huh. What? They do. It's <laughs> true. I'm just it's true. saying it. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's typically what happens. So you think that's easier to do in a country that's as big as America, where people can... I don't know like if it's you- easier. I'm just explaining. There's this biological tribal nature that human beings have. You see it in the animal kingdom, too. Mm-hmm. Man. Well, when you're talking try, about people from Mexico... Go be a lion and try to cross over into another <laughs> lion's territory. Yeah. Okay? They'll send the troops, man. They will. They don't like it. And it's because you're an outsider. They they don't know you. A lot of it, I think, has to do with a common language. I'm not saying it's right. Common language, common culture, traditions, and you just feel more comfortable surrounded by people who who speak the same language that you do. But you also have an idea of how that person's going to act. So you feel safe. Mm -hmm. Okay, If you have no idea what that person's going to do, you have to be on guard. Right? Because you're vulnerable. To attack. You're vulnerable to being stabbed. <clears throat> you're vulnerable. And so when people don't look like you or talk like you or act like you, then you're on guard. And it makes sense. I'm not skinning. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it makes biological sense. We have to take that all into account and we should be able to have these conversations. That's how we move forward. That's how we actually bring people who don't look alike together. Here's the problem. Like the answer is we all have the same laws that we have to act within you know like that we have the same set of rules that we have that we all are under and when you bring in someone from another say they come from syria or whatever you bring in someone who thinks that sharia law should be the law of the land okay well if they act in accordance with sharia law they need to be prosecuted under uh, american law still and hopefully people will learn that lesson over time Sharia law is kind of an extreme example, 
but if you take it something a little bit lighter, what happens when there is a tipping point in the voting base and the people, and you've got more people who think the law should be a little bit different because the people end up voting in the people who make the laws. And so is there like a natural worry you would have that eventually you're going to get enough people come in and they're going to put enough people in power that they're actually going to change the system, the way that the country operates uh, into, Which is why you shouldn't be allowed to make laws that just, yeah that supersede. You should only have laws lights. about people who hurt people or take their stuff, mm-hmm. like physically hurt people, and remove liberties away from other people. That's the problem when you have you give people positive rights and you take things away from one person and give it to another. Now let's look at uh, a couple clips here because, as I said, Ireland's not great when it comes to this whole free speech thing. Here is their uh, prime minister Leo. Varagkar, Varagkar, mm-hmm. whatever, how you want to say it. I can't say it in an Irish accent, sorry. Here's him talking about how they need to update their laws in accordance with the uh, Before social... Before you get to that, though, I think Magoo's right from the Fed Haters Club, which you can join by going to joingml.com. He said maybe this guy was just trying to get harsher knife laws passed in Ireland. No, we'll have to see, we'll have to see yeah. his, his manifesto in like six, six or eight months. Mm-hmm. You know, We'll figure out what that Kinda was. Like, the guy in America, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he didn't think Ireland's knife laws were street. He could just go mm-hmm. to a store, get knife, and kill children. Or maybe he thought there were too many immigrants in Ireland. Go store, get knife. He was unhappy with their immigration policies. Children dead. Actually, that's yeah. what it was. Okay, here's uh, what this PM is saying. We're going to make sure that we make those changes to our laws uh, in the next couple of weeks to allow the Gardaí uh, to use that evidence and go through that evidence uh, and identify the people who are involved in these actions, and we are going to get them. Uh, In addition to that, I think it's now very obvious to anyone who might have doubted it that our incitement hatred legislation is just not up to date. It's not up to date for the social media age, uh, and we need that legislation through, and we need it through within a matter of weeks, um, because it's not just the platforms who have a responsibility here, and they do. Uh, there's also the individuals uh, who post messages and images online uh, that stir up hatred and violence. Uh, and we need to be able to use laws to go after them individually as well. Mm-hmm. Incitement to hatred. Not even just hatred, like incitement to hatred. Not incitement to violence. Incitement to hatred. You can't post a meme that might lead to someone not liking a certain person or whatever certain group of people. Yeah. It's illegal. The problem here is freedom of speech. That is the main problem. Yeah. It's that people are freely thinking. We played this clip before, but uh, here's a member of the Green Party. This was, I think, on a dumb leap of the week one time. Uh, this is how they do things up there. When you think about it, all law, all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. That's exactly what we're doing here. Is- she's right about that. All laws, all legislation are about restriction of freedom. That's pretty, pretty true. We are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. You will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. When you- if you make someone feel bad. Uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Great stuff. Way to go. 
uh, way to go over there in Ireland. She seems uh, like she's that mom at school, you know, <laughs> that's getting on a Timmy for making her son Johnny feel bad mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about his handwriting. And so Johnny should go to jail mm-hmm. for that. Let me see. Authorities reportedly have launched an investigation into the mixed martial arts fighter as part about Conor McGregor as part of an inquiry into the dissemination of so-called online hate speech. According to the Sunday Times, the investigation. Based on what he said. Yep. <laughs> the investi- investigation, because he could have incited hatred against other people by saying that, that your guess is as good as mine. Okay. Uh, the investigation comes as Irish officials have reportedly started preparing to pass radical legislation concerning the public speech law, which historically has lacked a consistent definition. Um, he recently told media that the lawmakers should immediately pass Let's legislation the Yeah, the next few weeks. Stir okay. up hatred. And violence. Seems like Argentina is a better place to move yeah. to than Ireland. <laughs> there is a couple other things. Uh, we're not losing any more of our women and children, the sick and twisted people who should not even be in Ireland in the first place. Mm. Mm. That's, that's, there's the hatred coming in. Yeah. There's that video. There's that video. Oh, Dublin mass stabbing suspect is a naturalized citizen who's been in Ireland for decades, uh, according to the police. So there was that little tidbit too. So he's not white from what I can tell. Uh, according to the reporting, but he has been in Ireland for decades, meaning it's not exactly the people that everyone is upset about, like all the recent refugees and immigrants and stuff coming from uh, U.S. wars that have been forced out of their countries and are going to safer places or anything like that. Someone who's been there for for 20 years or so, at least. Yeah, and he had access to assault knives. Uh, that's the problem. He probably wrote about it. Like, how did I, how did I get this knife? Because nah. Ireland has pretty strict gun laws. <laughs> so this guy was still able to, to mass murder people. I will look more into, uh, some of the rates of crime in these countries that have had large influxes of immigration. I didn't look into that for, for this conversation. We'll do a bigger conversation where we can really unpack some of the dicey things that we were thinking about <laughs> saying. During this show, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> Nate, she already had the answer. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's yes. But I, I would like to actually have the uh, data. If I say anything, I'm more relying on the echo chamber of Twitter showing me specific mm-hmm. videos about things happening. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't exactly get a video of a of an Irish person stabbing someone. But I would see a video of a Syrian person stabbing someone. That's I think, just the way it works. I think Jordan Peterson talks about the actual like the underneath problem with this. He does a really good job of explaining that it's, it's actually a miracle that you go outside and the world's not on fire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. He talks about, it's like, it's amazing that we can all sit in this theater, thousands of us together and we're not tearing each other to pieces like chimps because that's what chimps do. That's what he says. Mm -hmm. And then, so you actually start thinking about that. It's like, we do have this, Again, we have this like biological nature where if people don't look like us or talk like us or act like us, then we don't know what they're capable of, right? They could be capable of stabbing us or they could be capable of becoming our best friend. We don't know. So, of course, like that also goes for people who do look like us. True. (laughs) True. But Nate, when when you're walking through the mall, (laughs) let me just ask you a question right now. When you're walking through a mall, okay? Yeah. And 
You're just walking by. Mm-hmm. Do you notice all these people who don't have tattoos on their face? Or do you notice the guy who's jacked? He's got a couple teardrops. He could be white, but yeah. got a couple teardrops. Mm-hmm. Jacked, walking around the mall. Do you kind of avoid that guy a little bit more than you would the other people who don't have tattoos on their face? I answer okay. honestly. Okay, I will answer honestly. I avoid everyone to the fullest extent, so I don't, you know, I don't have any frame of reference here. Uh, but, but yeah, sure. Okay. You would. All right, we got some interviews and some more great content coming right up on Liberty at Night with Nate and Chuck on the Free Talk Live Network. Eutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. What's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live network coming at you from Nashville, Tennessee. And this hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering the Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash Dow for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. That's Dash.org. So Charlie's not here for this current conversation. I am joined by author Alexandra Hudson. We'll be talking about her new book. It's called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. How are you doing today, Alexandra? I'm great, Nate. Thanks for having me. As we were just talking, you're traveling right now. You pulled over so you could talk to us. You're currently on a book tour. So if anyone hears any background noise or whatever, that's what's happening. I, I recommend you watch the video of those. So you can see all the beautiful scenery uh, behind you out there. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to um, talk about this. And, and just so you know, I guess everyone who's listening will find this out. But I, this sounds like a good episode for us to release on or around Thanksgiving. So we're, we're not going to release it immediately today, but I think around Thanksgiving, you know, talking about being thankful and kindness and all that, maybe that's the time that this should be uh, released. But tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about your book. So, uh, my name is Alexandra Hudson. I am passionate about beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us better lives today. And that's very much the ethos of our book, reviving the, the timeless principles human flourishing, how thoughtful people 
about how to do this thing called life together across deep difference? How might we thrive across deep difference? That is the most important question of our day. That's the question my book explores. This is a defining question of the classical liberal project of of a democracy. How do we overcome the worst parts of our nature, our self-love, and thrive in community and relationship with others? As I learned while writing this book, though, this is actually the defining human question. How do we, how do we, how do we, you know, contribute to this, the, the human social project and, and become our best selves and um, accomplish more together in, in community than, than individually. And um, I learned firsthand the importance of this topic of our, of our divided moment when I was working in government. I was at the U.S. Department of Education in a very divided moment, 2017 to 2018, and left deeply divided uh, after a deeply divided uh, moment and a very discouraging experience and desperately wanted to be a part of the solution is kind of the origin story of this book. I was in this environment of anti-human flourishing. And so I wrote a book on, on the timeless principles of human flourishing as a result of that. So speaking on uh, civility, I definitely think that's something we're lacking these days. You know, something just happened a couple, a couple days ago at the time that we're recording this where we almost had a fight break out during a, a Senate hearing, you know. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of, I, I feel guilty about it, but I kind of wanted to see it play out. So maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm part of the problem. Uh, but Well, it's, it's funny. It wouldn't be the first time that violence broke out in the House of, uh, on, the, on the floors of Congress. Uh, in fact, in, um, in the 1890s, there was um, a murder on the steps of, ca- of, of the Capitol. There was this uh, Congress person, uh, Tolby, uh, William Tolby. He had been exposed by a journalist for his extramarital affair. Um, a, a, a guy named Charles Kincaid had, um, had written about this affair. And he resigned in disgrace. His political career was over. And Tolby, the congressman, after he was resigned, he... he stalked and bullied the journalist Charles Kincaid for years like any time actually it's really interesting um, you know the same day that uh, this fight almost broke out a few days ago uh, on the Senate floor uh, Kevin McCarthy was accused of and he was confirmed of elbowing his a political opponent in the kidney you know like actual <laughs> physical violence and that's and that's exactly what happened Kincaid um, uh, he, he, Tolby, you know, stepped on Kincaid's foot. He would punch him, shove him into walls, like elbow him. Like he was just like physically a bully and harassed this journalist for, you know, ending his career. And one day Charles Kincaid had had enough and he went to, after a, a one assault from, um, from the congressman, he came to the floors of con- for the, to the steps of Congress and shot him in the head. Wow. <laughs> and I... he was, he was, uh, he was acquitted in fact, cause everyone knew so widely of, of, um, the congressperson's like tyrannical bullying, um, uh, treatment of this, of this, uh, of this poor journalist. And the, the moral of that story is that civilization is fragile. Democracy is fragile. Peaceful coexistence between our fellow citizens is fragile. It's not a foregone conclusion. And, you know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he wrote in his Gulag Archipelago that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. But the line between civilization and barbarism of peaceful coexistence and, um, and war and violence and conflict, that goes through every human heart as well. And we underappreciate the role we each have in preserving peace and prosperity in our society today. So I did not know that story about someone actually getting murdered on the steps. I was told that this problem all started with uh, President Trump and that that's where oh, things were. Really, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what I had heard. And so you're saying, has this been a problem before 2016? This is absolutely a core argument of my book that this is not 
an America problem. This is not a now now problem, not a modernity problem. This is certainly not a Donald Trump problem. There's no question he, you know, coarsened our public discourse and certainly didn't help. Um, But this is a timeless human problem. This is a problem of the human condition. As long as we've been around as a species, we've been doggedly social. We yearn for relationship. We want to be in community with others. And yet morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. And that is why this thing called life together, civilization, democracy, friendship is always fragile. Again, never a foregone conclusion. And it lives and dies on our daily decisions, minute by minute decisions to overcome the self-love in our nature, to not let our baser instincts win out in a, in a given moment, a given exchange. And for the, for the sake of peace and harmony and, and, and a thriving human social project. So it might seem to some of us like things are, are getting worse than they've ever been. Although when you think about it in historical context, it's not like anyone's challenging someone to a duel or anything. So maybe things are better. Do you think things have gotten worse recently or is it just more out there in the open with social media and the news and all that? This is a timeless problem of time, a problem of, again, of the human condition. But there are epiphenomena, there are new things about our life today that have contributed to this problem and and have made it feel particularly acute and are, in fact, new challenges. For example, the ubiquity of the 24-7 news cycle, the fact that we are geographically and digitally siloed. We don't actually have to interact with people we don't want to interact with if we don't want to. Um, Social media that allows people to, I mean, Churchill had this great line 70 years ago. He said, the truth gets halfway around the, or that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And that was 70 years ago, but before the age of social media. And that's all the more the case now, where one person's mistruth, one person's vitriol can now affect millions in seconds. That is novel. That is new. That, that the, um, the, the, the core problem in our nature, the social and the selfish, that, that's a timeless problem. But now that the, the baser parts of ourselves, of the human condition can now reach, have, are, are amplified because of these novel technologies. But you'll, you'll be interested to know as I surveyed this question and this this genre of civility manuals, ethical handbooks from across history and culture, it's funny that every single society tends to feel like they're living in the most uncivil moment. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not a new phenomenon. It tends to be a part of the human condition to complain about kids these days, to complain about corrupt politicians, that this is not a new phenomenon. So what I wonder is, uh, how is, you know, I, this is a libertarian podcast and we talk about things that are going wrong uh, every single day and we talk about how high the stakes are and I, I I wonder if it's possible to be civil with people and have civil discourse when we also have the political rhetoric that is out there maybe we uh, help with some of that but when the stakes are uh, so high for people when bad economics can kill people or when wars can kill people and then also we have to turn around and you know, try to be nice to people at the same time that you think are doing terrible things like how do we work that out well, two things. One, I argue in my book that there's an essential distinction between civility and politeness. So I learned this firsthand when I was in government. I, I, when I got to government, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were people who were bullies, who were hostile, aggressive, abrasive. They were willing to, they had sharp elbows. They were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. On the other hand, there were people who I thought were my people. They were polished and poised and polite. But I learned that these were the people who would smile at me one moment and then stab me in the back the next. And that clarified for me this essential distinction between civility 
and politeness. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's external, it's behavior, it's a technique. Whereas civility is a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that crucially, sometimes civility, actually respecting someone, requires being impolite. It requires breaking the rules of propriety and etiquette, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate, even protesting. I, I, I recover the, the um, whole tradition of civil disobedience in my definition of civility, that sometimes it's a duty of citizenship to stand up against unjust laws that degrade equal treatment under the law, personhood, and human dignity. These core ideas of the classical liberal project, of the American democratic project. And I reclaim, you know, Thoreau, Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so a, a, as part of this tradition to help clarify uh, and to make the case that we may, need less, you know, tone policing, less, less etiquette and niceness in society right now and more true civility, more willingness to, to, to offend people in the name of telling a hard truth that's actually respecting someone, not patronizing them by papering over a difference and pretending a difference doesn't exist. That's not actually respecting someone. That can be really difficult when the truth seems to be very subjective for some people sometimes. So you could say, I'm being civil by telling, telling the truth and by debating you on this, but they could say, well, that's not the truth. What I think is true is the truth. And I'm being civil by, uh, by actually telling you what the truth is right now. So that all, that all seems to get really difficult. And what I find really hard is it, let's say I decide to, uh, treat everyone uh, completely civil and honor their opinions and do all that, which I try to do. It's tough to do when you feel like you're the only one doing it and there's no reciprocal nature, right? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're coming up towards the end of the year holiday season. Personally, I do look forward to it, but it can be pretty stressful. There's a lot of scheduling that you have to do with different family. Maybe they live around the globe. Maybe you're missing a loved one this year. Adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings that you're having. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all that stress that you're going through. Something to look forward to, make you feel grounded, give you the tools to manage everything that's going on. I've done therapy in the past. It was very helpful and life-changing just to talk through some of these things with people and learn how to deal with things as they come up. Charlie has used BetterHelp for years. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapist anytime for for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash GML. It's a great question, and it's a variation on this timeless question of philosophy. Like, how can you be a good, a good person in an unjust world, in a world full of bad people? And we hear this rhetoric a lot today that, you know, nice guys finish last, and, and, and the stakes are too high to be nice and decent to the other side. The other side is too bad, too wrong, too morally evil to respect or be, or be decent to, and the stakes are so high, we, we have to be willing to take the gloves off. And be willing to do and say anything to get ahead. And unfortunately, a symptom of this apocalyptic rhetoric that we see across the political spectrum is the tendency to dehumanize 
the other. This is a tendency that we do as human beings when the stakes feel high in times of election, in times of war, when it feels like there's an existential threat where our identity or our, our, our way of life is is at stake. We, we feel a tendency to dehumanize the other so that we, we feel justified uh, in doing whatever is necessary in order to win. And that's that's a problem for, for democracy and, 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 and for a free and flourishing society that is founded on basic human dignity and, and equality under the law. We can't be willing to um, suspend the rules of decency uh, for, for, for the sake of a, of a greater good. I mean, the if there's ever a time to suspend, you know, civility and respect for dignity, you know, it, it would have been in the fight against slavery uh, and the fight against segregation. And even some of the most prominent abolitionists knew that they could not suspend respect for personhood in, in the name of a greater good of equality for all. That, that in doing so, they would be undermining the exact ideals that they were fighting for. They couldn't say we're fighting for equality of all persons while undermining the dignity of some people along the way. And so, Dr. King, um, in his and his that that was that was central to, to Dr. King's philosophy. Um, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, they knew that um, they had to they had to respect the dignity of all persons on the way to pursuing equality for all. So, would you would you give that same explanation to someone who would say straight to your face, Trump is Hitler, and if we don't stop him, then we're going to have Hitler? And you know how bad that was. You know how how receptive to this message do you think some people are going to be? <laughs> I'm really sympathetic to people who say that when we analogize modern leaders to Hitler, like we diminish the evil that Hitler (laughs) that Hitler committed, you know, like it, it really cheapens. The mass murder and atrocities that, and, and the, the 6 million Jews and the 12 million people that were annihilated under the Third Reich when we analogize modern leaders that day. That's, I think that's really a monstrous tendency. But I think, you know, that, that, that tendency and that temptation to do that is a symptom of just how apocalyptic and, and how high stakes our, our current moment has, has come to feel. One thing I will say is that People insufficiently appreciate that when we are willing to take the gloves off and do anything in order to beat the other side, you know, own the lips, whatever it is, that we underappreciate that we don't just hurt the other, we hurt ourselves too. Dr. King is great on this. He was getting this from Socrates. Socrates said that virtue is its own reward. Being good, gracious, generous, just, that's health of the soul and that it's, that's its own reward. Vice, a vicious soul and the symptoms of a vicious soul are viciousness towards others others that it's that's its own punishment and that people who are vicious and cruel and malicious and unjust they don't deserve our vitriol they don't deserve our disdain they deserve our compassion because they're clearly sick and they're clearly suffering whether or not they acknowledge it and dr king uh, borrowed this idea from socrates in his letter from birmingham jail when he talked about segregation he said that segregation doesn't just hurt the segregated it hurts the segregator as well it deforms their soul he says and this is actually where i get my the title of my book, The Soul of Civility, it deforms their soul by inflating their, their sense of self. They, they have an inaccurate sense of the other by thinking that um, the other is, is inferior to them. And they have an, inferior, an inaccurate sense of self because they think that they're better than others and it deforms their soul. And so just as segregation hurts both parties, so does incivility. When we're cruel to another human being, we obviously hurt the other human being, but we also deform our own souls too. And just as incivility is mutually harmful, acts of charity, grace, kindness, compassion, hospitality, especially important as we get into the holidays, that is mutually ennobling. It's mutually 
uh, beneficial and it's mutually beautiful. It cultivates the humanity and humaneness of, of both parties. And so where does this where does this need to start? Does it need to start uh, with people in the government or people in the media or does it need to start in the in society itself, in the population and then filter up into those positions? A defining attribute of our current moment is our tendency to blame. You know, if we're if we're blaming someone else, we're not responsible. We're not culpable. We feel we feel justified. We feel it inflates our, our sense of self righteousness. And yet, you know, I my theory of social change in the book is hyper individual micro local level. I didn't write this book for, for public leaders, for the intelligentsia. I hope they read it. So anyone listening to this, feel free to send a copy to to your local public servant. I wrote it for everyday Americans who are exhausted and frustrated by the division in our world right now and desperately want to be a part of the solution. Okay. When I left a hostile... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> when I left our a hostile environment in, go- in government, I-, I call myself a refugee from federal government. I-, I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with D.C., I'm done with government, Like, let's move to Indiana. And Indiana is him- his home state where he's from originally. And my husband said, okay, great, sounds good, no take backs. <laughs> so we moved there a few months later, and we've been there five and a half years. Uh, one of my first friends when we moved to Indianapolis, her name was Joanna Taft. She came up to me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna, would you like to porch with us sometime. And I never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but I was curious. We didn't know any people in town, so we went to her porch that day. And I realized that Joanna is staging this quiet porching revolution from her great big front veranda. She had curated people across race, across politics, uh, across um, social class, geography in town, not to have a curated, you know, structured conversation about differences, but just to inhabit a shared space and and to sow seeds of trust and friendship that might one day provide a fertile ground for productive conversation across difference. But that is one challenge of our moment right now. There is no basic affection. There is no there is no respect or trust. And that's why we're not doing dialogue or life together across difference well at all. And that's what's so beautiful and revolutionary about Joanna's front porch, that she's creating this little oasis, this place where people can feel seen and known and loved and not essentialized and reduced to one aspect of who they are, who they vote for, what their skin color is. And Joanna also was reclaiming her civic sphere. She's saying, I can't control what journalists are writing about and and what politician is tweeting what or who's elbowing who in the kidney, you know? Like, (laughs) I am going to focus on what I can control. And I'm going to make my community better and stronger. And, and that's exactly what she's doing. And when, when I was a Novak journalism fellow, I reported on this phenomenon across the country that people with and without front porches are reclaiming their civic sphere. And they're saying, I can't control what's happening around me, but I can control myself. And I'm going to be part of the solution right from what, right where I am. And we have way more power than we realize as Americans. This is a core message from my book, that that the beauty of a democracy is that the citizen is prior to the regime. And that if we want change, we can be change and demand change from right, right where we are. And there's power in that. We have way more power as, um, as everyday citizens than we realize to be part of this solution. It's way too complex um, and way too intractable. No single, pol- single politician, no, um, no technology has caused it, right? This is a timeless human problem. No no policy, no politician, no single book is enough to solve this issue as well, that it has to be organic and spontaneous and voluntary. It can't be micromanaged. It can't be legislated. It has to be uh, organic, spontaneous, voluntary from every one of us at the local level to be a part of the solution. 
Well, tell your friend Joanna she needs to write a book on porching because that might be the revolution that we need. I, I wrote that book. That's my book. Oh, there you okay. go. Okay. All right. You got the porching book. All right. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. I want to let you get back on the road on that book tour. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hope you all enjoyed that interview with Alexandra Hudson. And make sure you check out her book on Amazon or wherever you get books, uh, The Soul of Civility. Make sure you check out check out our daily podcast, Good Morning Liberty, or go to our website, goodmorningliberty.us. We'll be right back with more. On Free Talk Live, we're bringing people to the ideas of liberty every day. From wrestling superstars like Glenn Jacobs. You guys really are having an impact, I believe. Like I said, uh, a lot of where I am now is due to listening to Free Talk Live. You changed my mind on some very important issues years ago. To random people tuning in on the radio. I was kind of stuck in the left-right paradigm. I heard your show by chance on a Saturday night. From there, I went on, joined the Free State Project, and become an amplifier. So, I mean, that's really the reason why I amp is uh, because... I know that if it wasn't for you guys being on as many stations as you are, I never would have found the ideas of liberty. You can help more people hear the message of liberty by joining Free Talk Live's AMPS program on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. And you'll get access to special perks. Visit amps.freetalklive.com, amps.freetalklive.com. What is up, all of our liberty-loving friends? We're back. Another fantastic episode of Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. We're going, we're going. We're uh, in the back half of hour two right now. I've got another whole hour after this. I don't know where you're listening, but hey, send us an email or send us a message on Twitter. Tell us uh, where you're where you're at where you're from, what you're doing, why are you listening on the radio right now, why are you listening on the Free Talk Live uh, channel on your favorite podcast app, just a little bit about yourself, okay? We'd love to hear it. Also, we've got a daily podcast that we do, if you want to hear more, called Good Morning Liberty. We talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning every single day of the week when we want to. We might miss a day every now and then, okay? Nobody's perfect, but we're just a couple free market individualists from Nashville, Tennessee, who care so much about this stuff that we've got 1,122 episodes as of today talking about some of this content. So you want to go find that on your favorite podcast app. You can go to joingml.com also, and uh, that'll take you to a sign up for the Fed Haters Club. Those are the people that get to hang out with us live every single day of the week. They chip in content when we do Dumb Bleep of the Week, and so some of the stuff that we talk about comes from this live group. We talk back and forth with them during the show, so you'll notice us cutting up back and forth with some random people who you can't hear. That's because we're just interacting with the Fed Haters Club. And of course, they get discounts on merchandise and special Fed Haters Club merchandise, things like that. So I'm not trying to be too pushy of a salesman or anything, but if you do care about liberty and the future of all humanity, then you might want to check out the Fed Haters Club. All right, so Charlie is not here for this interview either, uh, but I am joined by 
James Chernowski, who's been on the show several times now. He's a senior tech and innovation policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. James, nice to have you back. Well, we've got a we've got a couple things to to talk about today as we were just discussing. The first thing I wanted to ask about was the 702 reauthorization. And I know I know we've mentioned 702 a few times in the past, but for people who don't immediately recognize the the number that we're mentioning, if you could let them know what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So Section 702 is a portion of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, known as FISA, more broadly speaking. And what that does is it actually provides surveillance authorities to our intelligence community to go and collect the communications of non-U.S. persons. Now, the problem that's been documented with this particular program is that more often than not, when they are doing this, they are actually collecting the information of Americans, too, And that's really problematic. You know, we have a constitution with the Fourth Amendment, uh, and that doesn't go away just because your data was overseas and got collected incidentally here. (laughs) So this program has been repeatedly misused and abused in the 15 years since it was uh, signed into law by then uh, the Bush administration. Um, You know, it's been used to go and spy on January 6th protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, sitting members of Congress, a state local party and 19,000 political donors to a campaign. Right. So I think that we have lots of documented abuses that have happened with this program. And as a result of that, we've seen a very interesting, you know, uh, case of strange bedfellows emerge where you have both, you know, members of the left and the right getting together, recognizing that this is a problem that is in desperate need of a solution. So recently we had a couple of senators and some members of So the House of Representatives go and introduce what's called the Government Surveillance Reform Act that seeks to actually go and address some of these misuses and abuses that we've had occur underneath Section 702 of FISA. So that way you can have the balance of the national security interests, um, you know, because that certainly is an aspect that we can't ignore, uh, while also balancing that against the people's civil liberties here in the United States. That is very paramount, I think, to maintaining uh, you know, our national security, but also helping to restore lost trust in the very institutions that are supposed to be helping keep America safe. So I've, I've grown pretty cynical on all of these things. And when I hear that they're reforming something, my assumption is that at the end of the day, they're somehow going to have more power afterwards that we didn't know of. But is is that what's happening this time? Thankfully, no, uh, that's not the intention, at least. We're, we're trying to go and have a productive conversation that, you know, creates guardrails and, and increases Congress's oversight and accountability functions that it can have over the intelligence community that has been using these authorities for years and really the punishments for violating the law in this instance have been negligible to non-existent the worst punishment that i've heard of has been a you know um when somebody lied to the fisa court actually underneath the carter page which was underneath a completely different portion of fisa um that lawyer in question just basically faced a probation which is nothing in the scheme of things uh, which means that the intelligence community can feel quite emboldened just go and blatantly disregard things and, and violate your rights because again what's the punishment for going and doing it uh seems to be not all that much so the gsra uh as it's known to be is trying to go and have some accountability measures in there um for people that go and knowingly and willingly violate that law and then it also goes and has um like i said oversight functions for congress uh, more broadly speaking but then it doesn't just focus on fisa it also goes and covers the executive surveillance programming that we see done underneath executive order 12333 it's called so um it's really trying to tackle the broader surveillance issue that has plagued our government um over the last 15 plus years uh and and you know again the intention is to not go and have the government be more empowered and at least as written i don't see many ways that that would be possible so that's the good news i've 
read something about them potentially requiring a, a warrant to access this information, which I've also read as a red line for some of these people. Uh, are we going to get that warrant? Yes, um, that, that is actually one of the mainline features of the legislation is that there would be a warrant requirement um, that would be in place there where, you know, if you're trying to go and access that information where in a situation where you would normally require a warrant, it's saying get a warrant, which is a very simple thing, I think. You know, I don't think that's controversial to go and ask for, but apparently if you ask the administration, that's just a big no-no uh, and they will threaten to veto the legislation, even though when they were making those comments, interestingly enough, uh, the Biden official that was speaking uh, anonymously said that they had not read the proposal. So I think it's a little hard to go and sit there and, and, you know, make such kind of commentary when you haven't even read the proposal to know what's in it. But then again, maybe that's just, you know, part of Congress, more broadly speaking, where they just don't read the bills or something. Well, um, we need to sign it to know what's in it. We all know that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we want to avoid that kind of a situation playing out here. Um, and I think that the warrant requirements are actually very important because, again, um, you don't want this just being misused and abused. And part of the reason why is that, again, they don't have to worry about the warrants or just going and operating with the FISA court, um, you know, where, again, it's very difficult because if you're somebody who's being targeted, let's say, um, for that kind of surveillance, one of the issues is that you wouldn't even know. This is a point that Senator Lee raised when he was at the press conference introducing the legislation. He's like, how would you know? Uh, all this is classified, right? So you you don't even know. So part of the part of the measures in the GSRA is also trying to go and increase the transparency um, within the the FISA court process and having an amicus that can go and review some of this stuff uh, to go and defend the civil liberties a little bit more, you know, scru- scru- scrupulously than otherwise has been possible, right? So um, again, I think that this was a very strong proposal by members again across the political spectrum um, that recognize that there's a problem and. They do recognize the national security importance, I think. But again, it can't be that in pursuit of that mission that you get a blank check to do whatever you want because national security, civil liberties do matter. And the fact that you have had all those abuses over the years has led to people not trusting in the FBI and these intelligence communities that have, you know, largely gone and gone unchecked for years on end. So, again, it's really important to go and get us back on a path where we can go and restore the lost trust in these institutions. And that's what this kind of legislation tackles. I have a question on the warrant. Maybe you'll know how this works. Just one more thing on that. Is this a warrant that goes to an outside normal legal court process or is this going to be an in-house warrant where they you know the that the FISA court has to do or have it is it just going to be a rubber stamp warrant I guess is what I'm asking no I don't think that it would be a rubber stamp warrant I think the intention there is to make sure that it, it is something that um, you know, is, is something that you'll actually have to monitor. I think that that is a problem that we've seen occur in other instances where I remember back to my work in the States on this in Utah, there was a report one time where uh, the average time for a judge to go and approve a warrant took less than the average number of pages that would have been, uh, you know, required for reading, let's say, in terms of the time. It just didn't line up right. So that, that rubber stamping thing is certainly an issue. But um, no, I think that this is meant to actually go and reinforce um, you know, having that, that due process being respected there. Um, so I would say that it's not trying to go and have a rubber stamping process, which is why the administration is so opposed to it. They think that it would be untenable and would result in people getting killed, which I think is not true whatsoever. Um, again, if there was an exigency, it's not like you, you can't go and navigate that. Um, so again, I think that it's not meant to do a rubber stamp. It's not meant to go and, you know, prevent the government from dealing with those, um, you know, high risk situations, if you will. Um, I think that it's trying to be very cognizant of respecting the boundaries in both directions here. 
I guess I wonder if uh, in doing this, does it mean that people in Congress are learning the lesson that it's bad for the government to have this much blanket power in, in surveillance? I, like I thought when Trump got in office, well, his campaign was was spied on using this. So I assume uh, that we are actually going to be kind of clamping down on the surveillance state, but it actually expanded a little bit while while he was in power, to, to my understanding anyway. Uh, but now you talk about them spying on uh BLM, uh, things like that. Is it is it just that people on both sides of the aisle are sort of learning this lesson slowly as more time goes on? Yeah, I think that that's why you've seen a, a turn with with many Republicans, um, you know, getting onto this kind of stuff. But I mean, the people that are leading on this have been critics of this exact kind of issue for many years. I mean, Mike Lee. That's always been his bread and butter is talking about civil liberties and and worry about government abuse of power. Right. He's been so strong on that for years on end. So um, he's really been a champion in this space. And same thing for Ron Wyden, too, to his credit. I mean, again, he's a Democrat, but he is really good about understanding why it's problematic when the government just has these untapped and unaccountable powers at their disposal. Right. So I think that we can't ignore, um, you know, the importance of the bipartisan nature of this legislation. It's also interesting to me, uh, I guess just one more thing on this same, the same topic that as we, we keep hearing about the border being so relaxed and so many people coming over, we don't know how many, uh, people, uh, members of terrorist groups have come across. I am somewhat surprised to see them, uh, issuing more restrictions on the government surveillance at the time that they're also talking about more and more, uh, threats potentially from within the U.S. So what's that side saying about it? Yeah, I think I think that you know it, it's a, it's an interesting conversation around national security uh, is ultimately what that comes down to, uh, and I think that that's a line drawing exercise in, in my view is that you know how far does national security take you to justify the the the, the ends that you're seeking to accomplish here, um, and at the end of the day, I think that there is a balancing measure there. Um, and we're, you know, that's why it's important to go and have the conversation to go and close the gaps where we can here, because at the end of the day, I think that those same Republicans that care about border security also recognize the serious problem that's come from the government weaponizing its power to go and target, you know, American civilians, which again, this program was originally meant to target non-U.S. persons. So I think that, um, you know, Republicans are certainly keenly aware of trying to strike that balance a little bit better. Um, so I think that I'm personally that there's there's a way that we can go and um, you know navigate that conversation better than perhaps we might have been able to in years past. All right, well, let's pivot to another conversation here. Uh, you were telling me beforehand that you've been following this Biden executive order on on AI, and uh, what do you you know what do you think about that so far? Well, it's not great. There are some good things tacked away in it, so it's not all bad. Um, but there are uh, many things that it's trying to do. So, number one, it's leveraging the Defense Production Act. Um, in order to go and adjust how the government procurement process is going to work around these technologies, which is something that I'm internally torn about. Because on one end, as we were just talking about with FISA, the government can go and leverage this technology to go and do some really abusive things. But on the other side, the government's also one of the largest procurers of a lot of this software, which means that it can go and basically shape what some companies might be doing in terms of their development processes of the technology, which could harm innovation and growth that we otherwise might not have um, because they're trying to go and get those government contract dollars, right? So um, I have mixed feelings about that particular <laughs> aspect of the executive order. 
But then on the flip side, it also rightly recognizes that we need to go and do more to streamline and, and, and make it more efficient to get these uh, immigrants into the United States that are specialized in dealing with this kind of technology so that we can maintain our our, our knowledge gap over the rest of the world on artificial intelligence. The United States is leading in many ways in this race. And the best way that we can ensure that we do that is by making sure that we keep the best minds here in the United States and attract them here um, and make sure that we have the companies here in the United States. Um, so that's, that's great. Uh, but I think that that gets undermined when you're dealing with uh, the procurement process stuff, which might go and slow down innovation and by extension, perhaps the need for as many immigrants to go and tackle um, this, this pressing issue as it comes up. Um, and then, you know, there's other parts of the executive order that are tackling, you know, nuclear war and, and biochemical weapons and AI being used in those instances. It's also calling on the FTC to go and, um, you know, enforce existing law, but also contemplate new rules and regulations, which makes Lena Khan so happy because she is not <laughs> a fan of AI either. Um, she tried investigating open AI back in, in July, you know, underneath the guise of broad consumer harm. But in actuality, what it was about was her trying to target the large language model uh, as inputs that was producing, you know, false results about individuals, right? Um, so I'm not overly excited about him going and encouraging the FTC to do more here, but he's also encouraging the broad administrative state to do more too. To enforce existing laws, think about how you're going to be using it, think about how you might want to regulate it within your space. That's a death by a thousand cuts strategy to AI, and that I think is a net negative. Um, so we're not particularly thrilled overall with the AI executive order from this administration. Well, there's a big danger of uh, if they're going to get involved in regulating AI, my assumption is there'll be a lot of regulatory capture by some of the really big uh, corporations that are already well established in this field, and they'll have regulations that are going to help them uh, grow and make more money at, at the expense of some of the smaller companies and is that likely to happen you think i mean yeah 100 percent. i think that part's hard to ignore and it's been something that i've been beating the drum about since a lot of this stuff is kicking off over the last year is that um you know i can't help but notice that the kinds of regulations that people are clamoring for would go and entrench the very people that this administration are so upset with you know we've talked about numerous times on your show the animosity towards the big tech sector if you will um and i can't help but note that these kinds of proposals would make microsoft a lot better positioned to go and maintain a good strong status than in an alternative situation where they don't have uh these kinds of rules and regulations that control things and i can't help but also note that Really, the ones that are at risk here, too, are the open source community um, that actually drive a lot of cool little innovations that we don't otherwise think about that improve our online experiences, more broadly speaking. So, um, yeah, when we're going and we're doing these these arbitrary guidelines of, well, if you have a frontier model or if you have these parameters that this this kind of regulation would apply to you. And they're like, well, you know, this only applies to the, the very largest models. It's basically what you're assuming there is that nobody else wants to go and grow to be to that level. And I think that that's a wrong headed approach it's just it does not make sense to me the the government's not typically who i think about when i think about brand new technologies uh, or anything you know i think about them hand keying in people's uh tax information or them using uh some kind of software that's a, a language that's 50 60 years old or something you know when they're when they're dealing with this so i don't really uh i don't really see them as someone who should be heavily involved in the development of ai in the first place would it would it be better if they would just stay out altogether. 
I would certainly argue so. And that's that's what we did when we were having the conversations about the Internet back in the day. Europe decided to be a lot more hands on and restrictive about their policy choices, whereas the United States was like, we're going to go and embrace hands off. And what do you know? We gained trillions of dollars in economic activity, lots and lots of jobs that are high paying and, and really good. Um, and a lot of net positive for the United States when we have a twenty six trillion dollar economy. And the same kind of impact can be had here in AI because AI is going to be impacting every single industry of our economy in some rhyme or fashion, um, both in an internal facing capacity as well as in a consumer facing capacity. And I can't think of anything worse than having an administration where the president was influenced about his thinking on AI a little bit by watching the most recent Tom Cruise's uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> movie, uh, you know, uh, to go and, and think about that and have worries about it. That's just the whole point of a movie is that you're supposed to suspend belief, not actually go and buy into it. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's really alarming when you see stuff like that. I think that on average, you want to go and embrace a light touch approach. You want to go and see what we can do to support, not stifle the innovation and entrepreneurial spirit of the American economy uh, that we have out there. Um, but unfortunately, we've let these these AI doomers uh, go and drive the conversation because they're worried about nuclear war, pandemics. That's a, that's the, what they're likening AI to. And that's just like the chances of that happening, the Terminator doomsday scenario. It is so unrealistic in terms of that probability that it, it is wrong to be basing, couching the conversation in that kind of an outcome. Because what that does is it drives your entire perception of the technology by fear. And we've, we've seen this play out time and time over history, whether it was with the printing press or radio or television or going to the smartphone. People always feared this technology. And then once it got integrated, people actually liked it and were better off as a result of it. And the same thing holds true here. Okay, you brought it up. So totally off topic conversation here. What did you think about the new Mission Impossible and the villain being AI? Did you did you like that? I, I actually have not seen the new Mission oh, okay. Impossible movie. Okay. So when I All saw right. that that was what it was, I was like, of course it's AI. Uh, and I was actually just talking to my dad last night and he was telling me about some other movie on Netflix that also has AI as part of its enemy list. And I'm just like, oh, I'll leave it to that. Maybe Hollywood's uh, you know, Writer's Guild or something is trying to go and push anti-AI <laughs> stuff into the script more or something. I don't know. Uh, we got to go and fix that pronto uh, because I, I would rather go and focus the conversation around AI about the immense good that it can do, about how it can go and help kids kids better navigate their educational system so that they can learn better. Because one thing that happened with COVID was we locked everybody down. We kept kids in and the learning loss is generational in its impact. And this can go and help close that gap a little bit more because we can go and not just teach kids about what's right or wrong, but how to get to right instead of that simple binary, right? Or in the healthcare context, you know, AI is being used to help spot cancer at a much more effective and efficient rate than it was otherwise able to in the past when it was just relying on the, the x-ray technicians to go and figure it out. 50% versus 25% on the miss rate, that's a massive difference. That's a lot of lives saved, right? Using AI to go and help a person that had a stroke um, by giving them trousers that are connected to the AI to help them with walking. That's incredibly important for them, right? But that doesn't get discussed because there's a perverse incentive to go and highlight the Terminator situation or to go and highlight, you know, the weird, creepy AI personality that came out because somebody intentionally broke the large language model. Like, I mean, that's, that's just silly stuff. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's definitely not as fun to talk about uh, kids being able to uh, learn certain topics, you know, during the pandemic better uh, than it is to talk about a robot coming from the future to uh, or cyborg coming from the future to to kill people. You know, that's I, I will admit that one's a lot more exciting to me, and it does work. And I wonder if that's 
I, I wonder if that's why they focus on the fear because politicians, you, you know, they, they can govern a lot by people being scared of things. And so that's why it's so easy for them to jump into this field. Oh, you're 100% right. Whether it's in FISA or it's in artificial intelligence, fear is a very powerful tool because it will go and let you, you know, do things that you otherwise might not do. That was the same thing with COVID. Fear of, of, that, of that disease led to us doing a lot of things that would otherwise not happen. People were willing to give up their civil liberties in exchange for the security and privacy. Um, with FISA, you know, you're willing to go and give up civil liberties because you're worried about national security or another 9-11 happening, right? And in the instance of AI, you know, maybe you're willing to go and give up the, the economic progress and all of that that is possible if we let AI go about unfettered because you're worried about the, 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 the minuscule chance that you get the doomsday situation from Terminator. There's a lot of power in that message, but it doesn't make it any less wrong. It is a bad message to be sending. It is anti-American at its core because America has actually flourished by embracing tech and innovation. Imagine if the Wright brothers had to go through this large, you know, process of getting approval from the government before deploying its, you know, new plane design every single time, right? Like that would just, defy the law of, you know, mm-hmm. of logic. Like, why would you do that? That you, you imagine how much more stagnant our, our growth would be uh, and our growth rates in the economy would be if we had to go and follow that kind of regime. So, um, you know, we're going and doing what we can. We think that that particular executive order is um, way too broad and it's abusing emergency powers because he's using the Defense Production Act for it. Um, so we've gone and submitted some FOIAs to the Biden administration trying to get some more clarity around what makes them think that, you know, AI is an emergency or something when it's here to stay. It's going to be a permanent fixture of our economy. And we're going to try to hold them accountable for this abuse of power. As you were bringing up the Wright brothers, I just thought about uh, Starship sitting on the launch pad for a couple months waiting on approval from the FAA uh, so they can actually launch, which hopefully will be tomorrow morning. And I'll be watching to see if that happens. But anyway, James, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Let everyone know where they can go to read all your stuff and keep up with what you're doing. Absolutely. So to get all my latest musings on tech policy, you can go and follow me on X at JamesCZ19, or you can go and check out my profile on the Young Voices website, which is youngvoices.com. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Big thanks once again to James for coming on. He's been a frequent guest and always knows his stuff when it's coming out, when it comes to any of this uh, tech policy stuff. I don't have time to, to read all of it. So it's good to have some experts come on. And he's, he's always a great one. And like I, like I was saying before we started this interview, if you want to hear more of this or hear every single piece of content that we do, then you want to find Good Morning Liberty on your favorite podcast app. You can also go to our TikTok. Yeah, that's right. We got a TikTok. Like, we uh, got to keep up with the kids these days. Or Instagram, if that's your thing. Or Twitter slash X, if that's where you hang out. That's where you will find me most of the time. And of course, we've got like a thousand videos on YouTube and hundreds and hundreds of hours i guess probably thousands of hours of content out there on youtube so go find that as well we'll be right back with liberty at night well what is up all of our liberty loving friends this is another fantastic episode of liberty at night with nate and charlie on the free talk live network coming at you from nashville tennessee how's it going today chuck Oh, tonight you mean? It's tonight, going, going great tonight. I've got the always got my sunglasses on. I can't tell. 
because you wear yeah. sunglasses that night. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the time. That must so. be nice. I can't find my sunglasses. You, you can't. They were lost in the Thanksgiving shuffle. Oh, I know how much you love those things. Did I, you have a good I Thanksgiving? I did. Yeah, I did it's have good. a good one. I hope everyone listening had a great Thanksgiving. Our Tuesday night crowd. It's our first time talking to you since last week, so you're at least ten pounds heavier. And uh, so, thank you for being here. We got some things to talk about. We're going to be playing a little Reagan clip here because it pertains to something funny that happened yesterday. We got a couple news items to go through. I wanted to start off with a conspiracy theory. Is that okay? Do you want yeah. conspiracy theories today? I love conspiracy I've been, theories. I've um, been seeing something troubling go around uh, starting off in the land of China. And uh, apparently right now in the land of China, there is a mystery pneumonia sweeping over China, causing people to overwhelm the hospitals. Chinese officials are now encouraging people to wear a mask, social distance, stay at home. Oh, China's health ministry is downplaying the sickness, saying the uptick in cases was caused by the flu and other known pathogens. Uh, Newsweek says several countries are taking steps to prepare against the spread, the spread contagious respiratory illness as China battles a concerning spike in pneumonia cases. Many parts of China have been hit by the surprising surge in the illness, which has particularly impacted children. Mm. They were like, you know, that one we cooked up last time didn't do so well against kids. Yeah. So this time we need something for kids. Northern provinces in China have experienced a jump in flu-like illness for five weeks straight since mid-October. The fast spread of the COVID-19 in 2020 prompted extreme public health restrictions and quarantine measures. We all know the thing in China. The outbreak has recently worsened, according to The Who, not the ban. That's the World Health Organization spurring nations like Taiwan, India. Ooh, that's some fighting words right there, saying Taiwan's a nation. China's not going to like that one. India, Vietnam, to prepare in case the respiratory illness spreads further. The increase in cases, especially in children, prompted The Who to request more information from Beijing last week. Which and you I'll, know they give great information. Super prompt mm-hmm. to give out that information. More than 6% of hospital cases were attributed to flu-like illness in northern China, a steep increase over the past years, according to a report by Focus Taiwan. Mm. So, a lot Taiwan of stuff in China, here. they're at yeah. battle right Maybe now. Maybe this is the war. Mm. This is the beginning of the war right here. They're going to start mm. it with an illness. Maybe. We don't know. I'm just wondering, as we get into the holiday season, you know it was around this time, back in aught 19 uh, that another illness four years ago started spreading around in China the year right before a presidential election came up. Mm. And here we go. And we got this illness, pneumonia, this time affecting allegedly children. And we got a presidential election coming up. It doesn't mean you got to shut the whole country down, but what if you just encouraged everyone to use mail-in ballots? What, what if that's if? all you had to do was because you didn't want to get this mysterious kung fu flu or kung flu or whatever we called it back then. <laughs> I don't remember which one it is. Oh, you're getting us canceled again. <laughs> anyway. You know, we had just, we're just on the brink of coming out of our shadow band. <laughs> okay. That's the other thing I was talking a- about. You said something on there about like streaming to Facebook. We... We'll get banned if we just stream the Facebook. That's why we stream the Discord. Mm. We don't, because we don't have to watch what we say mm. when we stream the Discord. Mm. So we're we're gonna have to watch that. I don't know. I don't know how they're gonna like that. Like what we just said just then. 
Yeah. I mean, we're just, just now coming out just, of the throes. I know. It's been almost four years this show has been <laughs> shadow banned. We're going to start streaming the 4chan. <laughs> now we're definitely banned. That's it. You did it. Okay. Here's something funny that's going to be in Don't Bleep of the Week, I'm sure, but it's only Tuesday, so we needed to talk about it. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona just said with a completely straight face, I think it was President Reagan who said, we're from the government and we're, and we're here to help. And so this guy, Secretary of Education, is uh, he's talking about all the good things that they're going to be doing for everyone. Was this missing context? No. Oh. This is not missing context. He was actually talking about all the great things they're going to be doing for everyone and decided to quote President Reagan to get some people on the right on his side and say, hey, even President Reagan said we're from the government, we're here to help. <laughs> now, he could have meant it in just a little bit different way. But mm-hmm. here's uh, this guy saying that. You know, we're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Um, there's There are resources there. There's technical assistance I think, there. I think just right then he was like, there's something I'm missing. <laughs> that was that pause that he just took. Was yeah. that the entire quote? I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> uh, insert foot into mouth. Okay, let's see what Reagan actually said, and then we're actually maybe we'll listen to a bit of one of his speeches for fun today. Also, like don't he's, mind. he's like, we set up follow up calls with every governor we spoke yeah. with to That's make great. sure we're available. That's what people love or follow up call. We're sending out yeah. email blasts to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Okay. <laughs> Slightly different context than what the other guy was saying. Then. <laughs> the nine most terrifying words in the English language mm-hmm. are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yep. I was uh, telling y'all. So he did say, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. He, he kind of did yeah, say that. Just missed the first part of it. He didn't even say we're from the government. We're here. Though. He said, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And I, I was talking beforehand. We were, we were having a chat about Reagan uh, beforehand. And um, I know libertarians out there that are listening. Uh, he grew the government. The government got bigger while he was the president. Our uh, yearly expenditures, I was just looking on the Fred uh, they went up by about fifty five percent. Well, like our our yearly expenditures went up by about fifty five percent while he was the president. And um, I didn't look at the deficit. Uh, maybe that increased as well. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly if our expenditures went up that much. I would uh, guess that the deficit went up during that time as well. But his rhetoric my- clearly he instituted. Uh- you know, Reagan, uh, trickle down. Oh yeah, that's Reagan, right. Reaganomics, trickle yeah. down Reaganomics. <laughs> that's what we got. Yeah. Um, his rhetoric was on point, though. It was so good. So as I was looking for this quote, and if if you guys don't mind, if you'll pardon me, um, you'll excuse me. Yes, uh, I was looking for this quote, and I came across his inauguration address, and there was a little clip of it, and I was like, okay. Let me just click on this and see what he's talking about. And gall during it, if I didn't listen to the entire thing this morning, <laughs> like it was good. And that's not what I want to make everyone else do uh, right now. But 
I don't know. I think it'd be cool to listen to a few minutes of this guy saying things that I wish people were saying these days. I wish he did all the stuff he said he was going to do, or I wish the government got smaller while he was the president. You know, I'm sure he did some great things, some other not great ones. He kind of torpedoed the healthcare system. Uh, we already have Medicare, but he made it even worse with the uh, Mtala. We got that while he was mm-hmm. president. Some people like Intala. They think that the emergency room should be forced to take care of you. You know, as if if they weren't forced, they would just watch you die. That would just yeah. be a that's that would happen all the time. Mm-hmm. I believe there was like a case of this happening, and um, so they they signed this in the law that really screwed up our healthcare system. Um, and then we continued to screw it up even more with Obamacare and stuff like that. But anyway, this this stuff makes me feel good when I listen to it, and I wish. I, I want a presidential contestant front runner that talks like this actor talks. I want somebody to actually do. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say see this. action though. Yeah. Say this. And words then. are nice, mm-hmm. but I don't listen to words anymore. I don't, you guys shouldn't even be listening to me. No, you should see what the actions are. No, we're going to go outside and tax people immediately after this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, here's a, here's a few minutes of this speech. The business of our nation goes forward. These United States are confronted with an economic affliction of great proportions. We suffer from the longest and one of the worst sustained inflations in our national history. It distorts our economic decisions penalizes thrift and crushes the struggling young and the fixed income elderly alike. It threatens to shatter the lives of millions of our people. Idle industries have cast workers into unemployment, human misery, and personal indignity. Those who do work are denied a fair return for their labor by a tax system which penalizes successful achievement and keeps us from maintaining full productivity. But great as our tax burden is, it has not kept pace with public spending. For decades, we have piled deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future for the temporary convenience of the present. To continue this long trend is to guarantee tremendous social, cultural, political, and economic upheavals. You and I, as individuals can, by borrowing, live beyond our means, but for only a limited period of time. Why then should we think that collectively, as a nation, we're not bound by that same limitation? We must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. And let there be no misunderstanding. We are going to begin to act beginning today. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Mm. Mm. 
From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule, that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? All of us together, in and out of government, must bear the burden. The solutions we seek must be equitable with no one group singled out to pay a higher price. We hear much of special interest groups. Well, our concern must be for a special interest group that has been too long neglected. It knows no sectional boundaries or ethnic and racial divisions, and it crosses political party lines. It is made up of men and women who raise our food, patrol our streets, man our mines and factories, teach our children, keep our homes, and heal us when we're sick. Professionals, industrialists, shopkeepers, clerks, cabbies, and truck drivers. They are, in short, we the people. This breed called Americans. Well, this administration's objective will be a healthy, vigorous, growing economy that provides equal opportunities for all Americans with no barriers born of bigotry or discrimination. Putting America back to work means putting all Americans back to work. Ending inflation means freeing all Americans from the terror of runaway living costs. All must share in the productive work of this new beginning, and all must share in the bounty of a revived economy. With the idealism and fair play which are the core of our system and our strength, we can have a strong and prosperous America at peace with itself and the world. So as we begin, let us take inventory. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. And this makes us special among the nations of the earth. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. It is time to check and reverse the growth of government, which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. Mm. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. All of us, all of us need to be reminded that the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. Now, so there will be no misunderstanding. It's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work. Work with us, not over us. To stand by our side, not ride on our back. Government can and must provide opportunity, not smother it. Foster productivity, not stifle it. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land 
We unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The pri- All right, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Actually, still ended up watching further than what I planned on watching just then. But I was like, yeah, keep going. Yeah, Let's he do said this so many good things. A lot of great things. Yes. So many things. We're great. Even, <laughs> you know, saying that, to be reminded, <clears throat> first of all, I didn't hear any ums no. or uhs or anything. No, I, I mean, he's like, reading. I, but, well, yeah. but still, <laughs> even sometimes when, when speakers are reading, they still mm-hmm. have to um. Yeah. Every now and then, but that's not great speakers. We 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 um a lot because those a lot. Are, it's a fair amount of mm. um, umming, I would say. Maybe some more than others, and <laughs> less than more than some, um, but less than others. That's exactly yeah. better what than I most. Thought it was. Um. <laughs> but he said. But he said one thing. I thought he said that was really cool. Was to be reminded that. The states created the federal government, not the federal government creating mm-hmm. the states. So it's kind of like humbling yourself mm-hmm. before the states. But then he increased federal government by still, like fifty percent. Increased it. He did, there's no decrease. It still it's went up. A, it's hard to stop a runaway train, mm-hmm. you know. However much you don't try, so <laughs> it's just tough to do, you know. Yeah. One thing I liked in there, I, I, I typed it out here. He said that he wanted an equitable system now these days what we look like is equitable is like we're going to reach out and and help that person or help that person or other people will pay a higher price he said he said he wanted it equitable where no one pays a higher price and that was that's a very different way of looking at it because he's basically talking about how let's just say rich people like we don't have to make other people pay a higher price for this society um these days we look at it and we say, well, some people shouldn't pay any price or some people should pay the price for other people. And that's equity. But what's actually equity is, is everyone doing the same thing. in in my opinion, anyway, that seems to be equal, mm-hmm. right? When everyone's doing the same thing, that's weird. I also notice that. Well, and the rich people will <clears throat> naturally pay a higher price because they're rich. Yeah, but it doesn't have so, to be a higher percentage. Right. You know, it can be exactly. a higher total, but right. not a higher Well, I'm percentage. just talking even in the free market. Yeah. You know, rich people are the ones who buy the expensive things that later become cheaper mm-hmm. for everyone else after it becomes fine tuned. You know, the other, these, there's easy examples of that with, you know, TVs being one of them. The other thing I noticed was just how often history repeats itself because you could actually take this speech 40 years ago and you could just have Donald Trump give it or something. <gasps> We're going to do a great job. <laughs> it's going to be like a little bit different, you know. Yeah. Uh, you could still have, you could have Vivek or I think Vivek might be one of the best ones at giving this type of message with, you mm-hmm. know, all the different people that are running right now. I wish he had a little bit more of a shot. Uh, it's still going to be Trump. By the yep. way, um, Vivek's not going to pull ahead of Trump. <laughs> the, I think Trump's going to win the presidency. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. On I know. I read this article that said that he said stuff that Hitler said. So <laughs> I don't know if I want Hitler which to be makes the president. Me, which you know? makes me believe he's going to win it even more. <laughs> They're definitely scared of him yeah. right now. Poor old Ron DeSantis is just 
floundering. Mm. It's just he's become a laughing like stock. I feel bad fish. for the guy. But no, it's weird how the same stuff is going he's like on right a fish now. Fish out of water. He is. He's talking. <laughs> he, he's talking about inflation. And he's talking about our runaway deficits and he's thought all the stuff that he's saying runaway government growth. We're just still dealing with it right now. Mm-hmm. Currently you could, you didn't have to change anything. You could just have one of the current presidential contenders give this exact same speech and it completely relates to everything that's happening right now. You don't even have to know that this was in 1981. It's the same <clears throat> different day. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That leads me to ask the question, somewhat pessimistically is is this ever going to change yeah is it going to have to get really bad before it changes it looks like it did in argentina i mean true they finally elected someone who says the right things in spanish does say the right things in spanish yeah Um, um, let's get that brush up on that quote real quick one more time from uh, miguel cardona that was fun you know we're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Um, there's That'll be a good don't believe. Forgot that that's the most terrifying words. <laughs> That'll be really good. Speaking of uh, what we're talking about, Argentina right now, this, uh, this headline from the New Yorker, the free market fundamentalism of Argentina's Javier Millet, the president-elect, a right-wing populist with authoritarian instincts, <laughs> has been compared to Donald Trump, but his radical views on the economy set him apart. Mm. So I Nothing <clears throat> speaks authoritarianism, like wanting people to be left like, alone. Like leaving you alone. That's... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's so I want the most authoritarian thing I can think of. I actually wanted to pick apart this article today. I had it pulled up and I was going to, I saw that uh, little, what do you call that second, like the byline or whatever the the second thing is. The sub headline. Yeah. Um, With the, with authoritarian instincts. So they put this in there and of course it gets people like us to talk about it and it makes their fans happy. You know, when they see this, I read the article, long article really just gave a lot of history of Melee. It mentioned absolutely nothing pertaining to any authoritarian instincts whatsoever. The word authoritarian doesn't exist inside the article at all. And it just talks about his plan of dollarizing the economy. It it lays out why he's actually, they're actually not going to be able to do that. And a lot of the things he wants to do because the legislature is not going to be behind him on doing it. But do you know how many people are going to think that this guy's authoritarian? Exactly. Simply That's the because point. of the subheading. I know. Because they're not going to read the article. Who's going to read the article? No, no one. You didn't even read the whole thing, mm-hmm. did you? I did, I did read the whole. I oh, was the whole thing. I was very. I was trying very hard to find the examples they give of why he's an authoritarian, and they gave none, and they never mentioned the authoritarian thing. Again, ever again in, in the article at all. They just put it there solely so we would talk about it today. Mm. Us. And so then you're like, I'm not going to talk about it. And that's what I, I said. So yeah. you're not going to control the content <laughs> on this program. So let's move on <laughs> real quick. Okay. Speaking of Which all you, the, did, you did mention it. I did. We did talk about it. So yeah, <clears throat> very briefly. That's too bad. We're not going to give it another minute though. Not one single other minute. 
you see these articles about Javier Mille all the time, though, right-wing, Trump-like, mm-hmm. and I don't know what it... I will say, look, so we do a podcast every day of the week on Good Morning Liberty. Do we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you can, if you, you know, if you're listening to the radio and you're like, oh, I want more of that, mm, uh, you know, yeah. uh, but you're probably not thinking, but if you are <laughs> for both of you, we do a podcast and, uh, uh, a while back last year, I believe I debated a very smart, intelligent lady, way smarter than I am. Her name is Amanda. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the most ladies. <laughs> <laughs> she's probably smarter than most ladies too. Statistically. She's way smarter than I am. Anyway, I debated her anyway, because I, I, I you know, I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. Like my co-host here, Nathaniel Paul is terrified of debates. I, I said I would Which debate. is fine. You can be scared of things like spiders and debates. <laughs> And, Those uh, are my two biggest fears. <laughs> and that's why you have someone like me. Yeah. You know, that's why we work so well together. Because I don't fear those things at all. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. fear other things. What was the debate about? It was about whether or not liberty needs a populist message, essentially. Mm. Does liberty need a populist candidate like Donald Trump, let's say, who is a, has a very populist message to actually get elected and maybe affect some change? I argued the affirmative that the Liberty movement needs someone who's populist to garner the support necessary to win an election. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Amanda rightfully, I think argued (laughs) negative in the fact that rightfully, what do you mean? Rightfully? (laughs) Well, cause it sucks that you need a populist message is what I would say. That is a fast track to getting kicked out of the club. (laughs) Look at that gif. Somebody posted a spider oh, in the Fed no, Haters Club. Look. look at that. No. Oh. But anyway, I'll, the, the problem is, is what the reason I argued in the affirmative and the reason why I think I was right is because if you just look at our culture, people gravitate towards, and you look at human nature. Reagan was a populist. Reagan also. was a populist. Mm-hmm. Listen to the way he speaks. It moves even smart people like you. Are Democrats who have won, I would say Obama was a populist, but would you really say the same thing about Biden? Or is the Democrat, is the is that left-wing ideology just naturally a populist ideology? Like that's what it, what it caters to. Yeah, you potentially. Know, it's a little bit tougher because on this side, whatever, I don't even want to say right, but whatever, you're more individualistic, you know? And so it's tough to do the the populist thing uh, without feeling like a hypocrite or, or whatever when you're doing it, you know? I think for people, yeah, who are like real libertarians, like mm-hmm. very solo. I think that's why the libertarian think, party has such a hard time organizing people because the, they, they're people who don't want to be organized. Yeah, that is true. I, I would say, though, that the, still the majority of human oh, beings, the majority oh. of human beings, can you control yourself for I'm one just, second? So I can get through. Sorry. So I can get through my message. <laughs> okay. Um, oh. I think the majority of human beings, yeah, like like chili beans, human, <laughs> human beings. Okay, they still have that innate nature to want to belong to a group. Right. Mm-hmm. We're still social creatures. There are very few people who actually legitimately like being alone. I'm not one of them. I don't. Yeah. No, that's a fear of mine is mm-hmm. being alone. I don't like being alone. I would rather be with a group of people. I'm a very social creature. Most human beings and beings are okay. And so what I think 
what the reason a populist message works is because it it stirs up that inner innate feeling of belonging to someone who's willing to fight back mm-hmm. and actually fight back because they they ta- they tap into that shadow that people have because everyone has one. See, I that's just a little bit of a dark side almost, but and that's exactly what Javier Mille did in the Libertarian Front, right? I mean, he he literally went at. He went out there and went after the people and basically saying, like, I'm going to rip you to shreds, all yeah. of it. And people want to get behind that. I kind mean, of he thing. brought a chainsaw. Yes. And Trump did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And now, did Trump follow through on all of that? No. Did he follow through on some of it? Yeah. The, the guy slashed a lot of regulations. That, that was a really good thing that Trump did. He's out there saying it, that he wants to get rid of Obamacare. <laughs> That's one of his campaign promises right now. I'm like, they had two years okay. to do it. 2016, like, 17, and I've 18. Seen, I've seen this one before. <laughs> yeah. I've seen this. Right. And so, <laughs> so anyway, I say all that to say, go back and listen to the debate I did with Amanda and you'll see one of the reasons why I, I, I argued the affirmative because I think when you look at our culture and I think when you look at human nature, someone like Javier Mille, the reason one of the reason why he won is he was a libertarian or liberty populist mm-hmm. and was able to be charismatic enough to get the people behind him to win the presidential election in a country. It's scared. The thing with, with Mele scares me because a, a populist campaign like that can disappear really quickly. You know, the people can, it can get you to what the percentage office. of the population can, was behind the American revolution. Uh, uh three. Three percent, like three to five percent. Three. That's why people wear those patches that say three percent. Yeah. That's a, uh, I believe those are the ones that they right. wear. So I get that. I get it. I just, I, I know. I agree with you that a populist candidate is the best, is the fastest way to get elected. Um, I just, I, I worry about the longevity. I was cracking up earlier because we just had this entire conversation solely because. You said we're not going to spend one more minute on this Javier Mille thing. And so both of us conspired together <laughs> to create what is now a six-minute longer conversation <laughs> solely because you said we're not going to spend another minute. We didn't minute. talk about that article, though. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> we didn't talk about that article. What was that, the New Yorker? Yeah, the Never New heard Yorker. Never heard of her. No, no. <laughs> No, don't like her. Okay, speaking of Ronald Reagan's message about the government being the here to help the problem and stuff, uh, from Politico, the FTC puts its lunch on your, wait, puts your lunch on its plate. It's got to be your lunch. Uh, before you get to this, though, honestly, <laughs> the only reason I brought it up was to bring up my debate. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I selfishly The one that people, you lost? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did. Now, I lost the debate, but it doesn't mean I wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So That's true. That's the way to look at it. There's always a little win in every loss, you know? You could sit and sulk in a corner mm-hmm. about your loss, or you could sit in the corner and realize how right you were about your loss and move on with your day. So anyway, the and plus I want people to go listen to the podcast. They, yeah, we. Yeah. you should go listen to Good Morning Liberty on your favorite podcast app. Mm-hmm. Or Just, you can find this entire episode, if you're listening on the radio right now, you can go to the Free Talk Live podcast channel and you can listen to the entire episode. In so, case you have to, you know... Get out of your car or whatever you're doing right now. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating if the $10 billion purchase of Subway creates a sandwich shop monopoly with Jimmy's John's 
and Arby's. The latter two, in addition to McAllister's Deli and Schlotsky's, are owned by private equity firm Rourke Capital, which inked a deal to buy Subway in August. Did you know, quick fact, Subway has the number one locations in the United States. I, I was actually, I learned that in the, uh, in this article. That's I'm pretty insane. Sure. They have like over 10,000 stores all over the place. And I, you look at the map, they cover the whole map. Now I don't know how in places that people don't even live. I, I don't know how <laughs> profitable they are. Dude, there's one between metropolis and my dad's a town of 300 people. It's, there's one fast food chain between, between metropolis and, in Pulaski, Illinois, mm. and it's a subway about halfway between. <laughs> well, they're growing in popularity because people don't make sandwiches at home anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Well, you it's know. a monopoly, so what are you going to do? <laughs> well, There's yeah. no way you can make a sandwich at home. Yeah. The government is focused in part on whether the addition of Subway gives Rourke too much control of a lucrative segment of the fast food industry, the people said. Making sandwiches. <laughs> Rourke, Rourke paid. They don't want women to lose their jobs. Rourke <laughs> We're definitely getting canceled now. Rourke paid around $10 billion for Subway, according to a third person with knowledge of the deal. The Atlanta-based work focuses on consumer chains with franchise models, and which, uh, which also include Duncan, Buffalo Wild Wings, and Baskin Robbins. The Carol Baskin's <laughs> the Robbins. investigation is in the early stages, and any resolution is likely months away. Merger reviews by antitrust regulators can often take a year or more. They did this back in August, and now they're deciding to investigate, and now it's going to take a long time for this to If you would have asked me whether or not Subway was about to go out of business, I would have said, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, who's serious? Send me an email, nate at goodmorningliberty.us. If you're like, mm, yeah, i got to get some, some of that breads, mm. you know? Because last I checked, it's mostly bread. And uh, the, the bread's fine. That's fine, but who's stopping at a Subway these days? I haven't eaten Subway. Jared's in prison. Yeah, you know? know? Who's going to Subway? I still see these athletes, though. They still, <laughs> they're still paying athletes heftily. That's heftily. true. I do see, do see the commercials a lot. Right. I think even Patrick Mahomes is now Subway guy. In any merger review, regulators must first determine the market where they believe competition is harmed. The companies are arguing the FTC should widen its focus beyond sandwiches saying consumers are choosing between a wider array of options when deciding what to eat, and that Rourke owns only a small fraction of the total U.S. fast food market, according to two of the people. But they own all the sandwiches. All <laughs> the sandwich shops. <laughs> uh, according to August 23 rankings. Well, is, Chick-fil- like, is a chicken sandwich a sandwich? I mean, it's a, it's a sandwich. There's are you a lot saying of they own like, and, the cold meats? Like the, I guess the cold I don't know how I mean, you, I usually go to Publix to get my subs. I love be, the pub subs. Yeah, well, that's... That's another monopoly. That's why you go there, I guess. Hmm. You got to choose between all the different monopolies guess, like, to go eat every Quiznos day. Quiznos is you know? out of business now. You know, Are they? I think so. Huh. And Quiznos had good subs. What about Jersey Mike's? A is, sub above? Does, I'm does not sure. Rourke own that? Uh, it's not listed. I'm hmm. sure it would have been. Uh, well, they have a monopoly, though. Subway is the largest U.S. sandwich chain based on 2022 sales with Arby's, Jimmy John's, and McAllister's Deli also in the top seven. So Rourke's doing pretty good overall. Yeah, also uh, Subway, I forgot about this, but Subway is a MAGA institution. Oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't know based that. Based on Juicy Smoulier. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was he went to Subway. Subway? Yeah. Sandwiches? <laughs> 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 Yeah. All right. Other things the uh, FTC 
is doing right now. They're hard at work. Oh man, they're always they're always at it. Okay, it's to protect you, thing. by the way. So Rourke already owns Arby's, Jimmy John's, McAllister's Deli, Schlotsky's. Uh, we know this. Uh, this this tweet from Elizabeth Warren. We don't need another private equity deal that could lead to higher food prices for consumers. The FTC is right to investigate whether the purchase of Subway by the same firm that owns Jimmy's John's and McAllister's Deli creates a sandwich shop monopoly. Have you seen the commercials where the dude, you know, what's his name from that also, TV show, is always way, calling it Jimmy's John's? The, yes. These are franchises, by the way. Yeah. So it's not like they own the fran they like they own the corporate mm-hmm. structure. But most of these shops, Subways, Jimmy John's, McAllister's Deli, they're individually owned and mm-hmm. operated. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's there's like a McDonald's corporation and then there's like the McDonald's stores. So what's that the- are usually owned by not McDonald's? I try to wrap my head around this idea. The idea is they're going to buy Subway. And so then Subway, Jimmy's John's, and McAllister's are all going to form this cartel pricing model uh, where they, they'll all be able to raise their prices, I guess. And the idea is... Well, now there's a sandwich monopoly. They got a sandwich monopoly, basically. And with the three of them together, kind of feels more like a cartel with one person kind of running the uh, the sandwich the sandwich cartel, you know, those dangerous people out there. Yeah. Okay, you got to pay your sandwich bill, folks. <laughs> a lot of movies about this. Okay. Um, and then think of the pigs that are going to be the, slaughtered. The idea for is the, for their ham. They can just raise their prices freely because when people go out to eat, they don't consider their other options. Like you see a line of restaurants, and there's a McDonald's and a Burger King and a and a Bojangles. And a chicken fillet, and what a burger, and all these places, and yeah. then there's a subway, Culver's. and you're like, well, I know subway sandwiches are around seventy nine dollars these days, <laughs> but I have to but have a sandwich. I, gotta, I, I get a free foot long if I stamp the rest of my card, <laughs> you know. So I got to go over there. Which, by and, the way, that free sandwich now is worth a lot more, <laughs> obviously. So there's all different ways that they have to compete. Not to mention the fact that you could buy your own Galdern long bread and put your own meats on it and just eat that at home. You could make your own Galdern yeah. long bread. Uh, exactly. You could make a two foot long. Whatever length you want, man. Sub. It's up to you. It's, yeah. it's constrained by the size of your oven. And you can make that bread and you can put your own meats on yeah. it. The, and that's the problem. Ovens. That's mm, big oven, especially gas powered mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, that's because that's bad for the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see where they're going with this. This is all part of a <laughs> grand master plan <laughs> right now. So there's all different ways that they have to compete with people, and of course, if they raise their prices more than what people are willing to pay, they'll just go to another fast food restaurant, or they'll make their sandwich at home, or they'll go to a gas station, which also sells subpar sandwiches in their little cold <laughs> section, or the Publix, which also sells sandwiches. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts of places for these long sandwiches. Yeah. These mysterious i'm pretty sure super important long sandwiches people have to get speedway has their own they subs. do they do yeah which is yeah panera panera breads mm. they got their own yeah. sandwiches out there but monopoly it's a monopoly yeah for sure that's what's going to happen the other thing that they're working on right now is they're still trying to shut down this merger between albertson's and and kroger mm. right now because that's going to lead to I'm so glad you said kroger and not kroger's 
<laughs> you know, people still say that. Huh? I still say Kroger's. Mostly older people, I think, yeah. that say that. Mm. Um, it's like see. going to Aldi's or Walmart's. Aldi's. It is just Aldi, isn't it? It is Aldi, yeah. or, or Lowe's. <laughs> After years of excessive inflation, <laughs> the merger between these two would unlock significant benefits for consumers: more product options, lower prices, and better customer service. Unfortunately, the FTC already appears to have made up its mind. This is about the merger between Albertsons and Kroger. They say that that's going to lead to them being able to raise their prices on the idea that they're going to band together and have this grocery store monopoly, and which means they can charge whatever they want for their groceries. But unfortunately, they're not even the number one or two or three uh, grocer out there. Uh, they're, I think, I think it was number four and six, Kroger and Albertsons, and. That's just by rank. They're not even close to the market share that number one and two and three have. They're like, these are two little stores. And they're trying to band together so they don't get put out of business by Walmart. That's Walmart's yeah. <laughs> right now. Anyway. So you're saying Walmart has a monopoly, but they have a- <laughs> they're trying to stop this monopoly from forming. So that, that way we don't have two monopolies. Yeah, you, you can only <laughs> there can only be three. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Right now we have about six monopolies. Mm. And they're worried that's that it too could many go for down. mono. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mono means any amount you want it to mean, yeah, but not that's six. Right. While the landmark deal is not expected to close until early 2024, it has already been reported that the FTC is not satisfied with the proposal, despite Kroger having agreed to divest over 400 stores in overlapping markets. They're just saying they're going to give away their stores that they've fought, that they gave their own blood for. Uh, they're just going to give them away to try and make the FTC happy. According to two sources with knowledge, uh, the FTC will likely take Kroger and Albertsons to court. If true, the court battle will be unfortunate, but not surprising. Where are the numbers here? Khan, Lena Khan, who has not won a court case yet. She's taken all kinds of people to court to try and block mergers, and she's lost all of them, mm. which is awesome. Good. It's great. If there is a merger that is presenting a lot of risk of reducing competition, may even create a monopoly, how would it create a monopoly? We need to weigh those risks, and especially given that some of these remedies in the past have failed. Um, let me see. You're What's about- amazing to me, though, it's like these people have nothing to do. No, it's- but we created their positions, and mm-hmm. now it's like they, that's what happens. You create these positions, and now they got to go looking yeah. for something that's not even happening. And she just keeps using your money, by the way. She's losing all of these court cases. She's slowing down all of these business merger deals. Not only that, she's making people scared to do any mergers because they're worried they're about to spend a year in court when when she's they prob- want to do a merger. She probably gets bonuses just based on how many lawsuits she files. Yeah, that's it. She's trying. Mm. It's the thought that counts. She's doing something. There's no evidence that the Kroger-Albertson's merger will result in any of the supposed harm she believes it would. For starters, Kroger-Albertson's merger would not create a monopoly in the grocery market. According to a recent report by Retail Info, Walmart remains the nation's largest grocer, controlling, I hate to even reason use that word, they have earned 17% of the grocery market. The second and third largest grocers are... I went to Walmart Grocery last night. Yeah. Lacey went last night to Walmart. Last night or the night before? She went both nights. That's just how powerful they are. Putting herself in danger. Well, she went to Mount Juliet this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I went is because they were open till 11. Mm-hmm. And it was like 9.45, and the other places were going to Kroger. That's a monopoly. Closes at 10. <laughs> Let's see. The second and third largest grocers are Amazon and Costco. <laughs> Amazon, Amazon, Amazon number two. The second. 
Kroger and Albertsons are only a distant fourth and sixth with market shares of 4.4% and 2.2%. And so they're worried that the two of those are going to combine together, join forces to have a 6.6% controlling yeah. share while, while Walmart has 17. Uh, they don't give the number for Amazon, but let's say it's 10 or, and that's or whatever. because the subway owner and the Kroger owner are their buddies. They're working together. They put subways in the Krogers. Mm. Actually, those are in Walmart's these days. So, <laughs> huh? Yeah, I don't know. If you follow it all the way through, though, it's a monopoly. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it definitely is a monopoly. We know that. Mm. Uh, so, in this article, they talk about how grocery stores, brick and mortar grocery stores, are on the decline, and a lot of people are ordering their groceries online from places like Amazon. And Walmart, yeah. and by the, the way. The problem is, and for, Costco. for places like Kroger and Albertsons, as they lose their market share and their sales go down or they don't increase at the rate that, say, inflation is or something like that, or uh, that their competitors are, they have a harder time offering some of the cheaper deals that they have. One thing that can help them is if they actually grow bigger, they combine together. They're two uh, pretty good bank accounts. They've got Kroger brand foods. They've got Albertson brand foods that they have cheaper deals on so they can actually offer cheaper products across both of the stores and they can afford to try and take on Walmart who has three times the market share that these two combine together would. Otherwise, what's going to happen is somewhere like Walmart and Amazon are just going to continue uh, getting more and more of the market share and Kroger or Albertsons or both are just going to go out of business. And then the only options you'll have are Walmart and Amazon mm. and Costco. All the stuff that the FTC does ends up benefiting the, the biggest people because these are two companies that are trying to stay alive right now competing against Walmart. And if they aren't able to merge, they might not be able to stay alive, and then only Walmart will be left, thus creating a mega monopoly. A MAGA monopoly, in fact. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. The superstore. Yes. Yeah. Super MAGA. Because Walmart already had they have the monopolies on those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, exactly. All right, man, we gotta go. Look I'm at the right timing. There. Look at that time. All right, if you enjoyed today's show, or you didn't, either one, then uh, stick around for more. Or don't. I don't care. Doesn't matter. And neither does liberty. Literally matters not. It matters not. <laughs> the only thing that matters is liberty. And if you mm. don't care about it, that's on you. I can't control that. I don't have a monopoly on liberty. And you can find that at goodmorningliberty.us. Brand new website, goodmorningliberty.us. Well, it's not new. It's just refurbished. We got new shirts. Just put up a new shirt design a few days ago. New merch. Mm -hmm. Go check it out. Um, go to joingmail.com, be part of the Fed Haters Club, or you can find that link on the website as well. Everything can be found on goodmorningliberty.us. That's goodmorningliberty.us. Go check out all that or don't. Share the show with a friend, family member, or foe, or not. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com.
Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupine Real Estate.com.